Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Being a parent can be really challenging. Child and Family Resource Network focuses on connecting pregnant parents and those with kids under the age of five with free support services to help them on their parenting journey. Everyone deserves someone they can turn to for help with parenting. Visit childandfamilyresourcenetwork.org today. Being a parent can be really challenging. It's normal to feel uncertain about whether you're doing the right things to raise healthy and happy children. That's why Child and Family Resource Network focuses on connecting pregnant parents and those with kids under the age of five with free support services to help them build confidence in their parenting journey. Everyone deserves to have someone they can turn to for support with parenting. Visit ChildAndFamilyResourceNetwork.org today. history <laughs> i'm d this is jack murphy jack is an army range former army ranger former green beret in the u.s army current journalist and author he has a podcast called the team house it's a great podcast i work on it good fun. production good production values there d i mean i don't want to say it i wanted you to be the one to say it <laughs> but i agree with you and uh what else dungeons and dragons fan yeah fan of do you like rainbow cookies i like rainbow cookies okay, I, I love food dye red dye number three blue dye number seven that's my favorite too i hear the hipsters talking mad shit about food dye what um, about it's bad for you it's bad for you apparently i, I love food dye because i'm not a communist exactly me neither I, I love america what's food dye do to you nothing it just makes you happy yeah because you're eating colorful food right it livens up what you're eating yeah and i didn't know this but some italian brought i know she uh she made me aware of it, that rainbow cookies were made to look like their Italian flag. Oh, the tricolor. Yeah, yeah that yeah. was like the original, like how it was. And then I started looking up rainbow cookies to send her, like pictures of them. And I found a red, white, and blue one, which is hilarious, <laughs> which is just perfect. But like, they're not always red, white, and uh, red, white, the uh, Italian flag. What is it? Red, white, uh, and green. Red, white, and green, yeah. Italians are gross. Anyway, this is Dirtback History. I actually have, you're kind of like a historian. No, I'm not a historian. That's a pretentious way of saying it. Historian, I think you're supposed to have a PhD to be a historian. Right, to make it worth, like, you know, make your fucking $500,000 of student loans worth it. <laughs> it still won't be worth it. No shit, you're gonna, you, what do you, if you're a PhD in history, if you're lucky and you're Dan Carlin, he's probably not even a PhD, 
you're teaching I history. He is. Yeah, and he's good at what he does. Uh, you know, I actually started off as a uh, well, I started off as an international business major, but then when I got to Columbia, I changed my major to history. That's my first major there. Oh, okay. And um, I, I was very frustrated with it, honestly. Really? Yeah. Yeah, really frustrated. They, Why? They silo off a lot of the information, I felt like, um, and they're very particular about what you're allowed to look at, what you're allowed to reference. Um, really? Like a lot of the stuff, or not a lot, but some of the stuff we'll even talk about today, like a history course. Yeah. A history teacher, would not they would not be cool with because it's too contemporary for them. It's what? It's getting too close into, into contemporary times. What's interesting about that is like, they silo shit off. It's like, bro, you're not in the 20s. Like, we can get all the information and more on the internet. Yeah, uh, and it's it's interesting because you have these different fields, and you could see it in college. Uh, you have uh, political science, which I did end up majoring in, history, and then journalism. And they all cover these different kinds of fields, but they all sort of fail to marry up with one another. You know, jur- you think a lot of it intertwines yeah a lot of journalists operate with a, a historical worldview i'm sorry to say that not all of them sure um but many sure they they see this one thing happening right now uh-huh. um historians are the other way around they look at things that happened a long time ago um but they're oftentimes not again not always but oftentimes unable to tell us why does this information matter now that's so interesting how they can't like do that in my, in my opinion. Or they don't want to do that. I mean, you went to Cod and go anywhere. In, in my opinion. That was just an observation I made. Um, and political science is a whole other thing that uh, maybe fails to look at both when in you, some ways. I think, I don't know if it was a podcast I heard with you on or whatever. You talking about, like, in one of your classes, like, in Columbia for political science, they teach you about, like, intelligence and shit? Like, you have classes like that? Um, not as a part of political science per se, but there were classes. I took a class on um, special operations of low intensity conflict, and another class That's on in- sick. intelligence operations, taught by uh, Austin Long, who I'm not sure where he is right now. He's a Rand Corporation guy, very smart guy, very good mm-hmm. classes. Um, you know, I-, I had a good experience taking them. Yeah, those sound like actually interesting classes. Oh yeah, they were know? absolutely. So yeah, nice way to shoehorn that you went to Columbia. That was smooth. <laughs> I'm gonna call it out. Dude, that that having a degree matters more to other people than it does to me. Like I know, like people attack me for it, and I don't, I don't really, normal, I don't, yeah, I don't normally bring it up. Why do they attack you for it? Because anything that's like educated, that's like equated to being like elitist or globalist. And they really attack you. Like I'm, like I'm busting balls. Yeah, obviously. yeah, yeah. And there are people out there who get really upset about it. And it's like, well, I, this is more important to you than it is to me. I mean, for me, it was school. It's education. You take away from it what you can, and you go about your life. And right? you got it for free, right? Because you served. I wouldn't go quite that far. Free-ish. Uh, I, I mean, I had it much better than other students because yeah. I had I, the. Post 9-11 GI Bill, the Yellow Ribbon Program, um, because I'm a New York State resident, have been my whole life. I had state tuition assistance. Okay. Uh, then there's the Pell Grant. Um, there's a few other little things we can apply for here and there. But You're still I, 30 grand a year? I, 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 still, <laughs> I still went like 20000 something dollars in debt. Okay, so that's not free. Um, so it could have been much worse. Yeah, I mean, yeah. think about somebody who doesn't have all of that. Uh, they really went into debt. Um, so you better have gotten like a... Uh, you better be going into finance and right. working for Chase or, or, or BlackRock or something. Yeah. You've got to make that money yeah, back. Yeah. Become a corporate piece of shit so you can at least pay your fucking your loans back. <laughs> yeah, for, it's true. Bro, I got a, I got a cousin. I always bring this up about like the, how ridiculous 
uh, education costs are. He went to Villanova. Mm-hmm. Smart dude, smart kid. Went to Villanova for four years. It was like fifty grand a year, forty five thousand a year. Then he went to Fordham Law, which is like fifty five thousand a year. Yeah. He got out and got offered like forty five grand a year in, in a salary starting, which you know eventually sure. I mean, right now, let's say ten years down the road, he's making one hundred fifty grand. How much is he really making? He's not making half a million unless he's billing fucking. You know, he's like a top one percent yeah, lawyer. Yeah. So, forty five G's, and that was like th- whatever that number was. If he actually had loans, he doesn't have loans because he luckily his family paid for it and stuff like that, which is awesome. But imagine some jamoke, some fucking regular kid, just taking out loans like this. He's got he's in the bag three hundred fifty grand, and he's making forty five grand a year. The math just doesn't. What add the up. fuck? How does yeah. that make sense? Doesn't and oh, by up. the way, you can't go bankrupt on it. It's literally like taxes. Like if you owe you owe taxes, you can't go bankrupt on it. Like they're gonna get their money because the government yeah, is yeah. like the biggest mafia in the world. It's the same thing with student loans. It's a fucking joke. Don't get me. You got me crazy, but we are talking about other stuff. <laughs> our shows. What's our show about? What the show? Yeah, I'm gonna put a timestamp to let it's... people know. Like, all right, past these therapy session ends at this time. Well. Good, great that you asked, Dee, uh, because this show, we will also talk about some catastrophic failures. Um, you know, something that people uh, in, in contemporary society, they think about U.S. military special operations as, uh, you know, these hardcore alpha male badasses, and which they are. Sure. Uh, but that all grew out of a whole series of failures, um, some really painful, difficult failures that happened in our history that led to, um, you know, reform. It led to our military asking itself some really difficult questions and fixing itself and improving things. And so today we're going to talk a little bit about the history of special operations, American special operations, if that's still uh, what you want me to speak to today. No, yeah, let's talk. I'm in. I'm yeah. in, brother. I like the segue, too, about failures and stuff like that. It's true. That it's was true. extremely – that, that was very smooth. Hey, you see, I'm getting the hang of this whole <laughs> podcast host thing. This broadcast stuff. Yeah, broadcasting. Did you ever think you'd be a broadcaster? No. No, and uh, I have, like, very little uh, to no technical background in audio, video, mm-hmm. streaming, all the software. I, that's not really my thing. You know, my thing is being a writer, um, being a researcher and a journalist and, and so on and so forth. I have been in podcasting since sure. about 2012, but honestly, it was other people setting all that sure. shit up for me. It was Ian Scotto I worked with for many years. Um, He's an awesome producer. Um, starting to do it on my own, starting the, up the the team house. Just, I'll say this: I did have to lean, and I, and I think this is something that you know you can take away from the military is having that sort of like inner self confidence. Like I can teach myself to do this, right on, yeah. And I can pull out all the manuals and just slog through them until I understand what yeah. the hell I'm doing. And so, just through brute force, I was able to kind of get it to a point that. Yeah, you're pretty proficient. It was in workable. It. I'm not saying you're not. And then yeah. we're bringing you on, took it that much higher because you were able to give it the attention it really Bro, deserves. Like if you're on, like I'm half here, I'm half at these levels right now, and I'm half here. It's fucking annoying. Yeah, yeah. And that's why I have the the cans on because I need to hear because I'm a psycho and I'm neurotic with that. So like with you doing the team house, I remember I used to watch the team house and you'd be getting up to fix right. stuff and adjust All and adjust. The time. Yeah, it's hard to like have a real conversation where you're not. You're just focused on one thing, your subject, 
and then have to worry about, oh, my God, are the fucking mics on? Is this fucking camera right? You know? And then at the end, you realize you fucked something up, and you're, like, sitting awake at 3 a.m. like, what did I do? It's brutal, dude. What did I do? I did that last time. I, I deleted an entire episode of my sister about Henry VIII. We did that twice. Really? Yeah. The one about the Reformation? No, the one before that was about Henry VIII oh, really? specifically. We did a cool, awesome episode, and I deleted it while I was editing it like a fucking idiot. And I brought the I brought it to the computer store computer place to try and restore it, try to get it back. He couldn't get it back because it was like a huge file, it was like an hour video. So, Man. so I we did it again. That's the worst. But you got to make lemonade, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, and what I did was like that was a big theme of the episode. Was me pissed about fucking deleting the episode. So I guess that helped that saved it, <laughs> salvaged it a little bit. So yeah, special operations in the United States. Yeah, man. Uh, it you know I figured for this we will kind of do like a broad overview. There's much, much more that yeah. we'll be able to talk about. But I mean, we're literally talking about from the year 1634, the first recorded American Ranger, to 2021. Um, sort of, I think we'll probably end if we get that far with the uh, the uh, targeted killing of Qasem Soleimani in Baghdad last year. So, I mean, there is a lot in between those two yeah, things. 400, we're, almost 400 years. We're not, we're not going to be able to get to all of it, but we'll try Dude, to. Dude, that's literally like a 10-hour thing. Yeah, yeah. I'll try to do a good overview, and then, you know, maybe down the line, we can pick out some subjects we're particularly yeah. interested in. And I will try to highlight a couple, like, vignettes as we go of, of interesting things that maybe people haven't heard of before. Right, and the Soleimani hit. I'm going to call it a hit, so, you know, that's basically what it was. People get sensitive about that term assassination. Okay. Carry some legal connotations. Is that what? Oh, sorry. Yeah. What's the so? What's like the the lawyer approved word? I don't even know what they're using. Targeted now. killing. Targeted killing. Would that be sounds one. bad. Also. Yeah, it does sound bad. That sounds like terminators. Yeah. Though. Lethal ops. Sure. Lethal operations. Liquidation. I, I don't think you can use that one. Maybe the Russians would use that one. I don't think we're allowed to use that. Um, you did an awesome story on Yahoo News for that, which was great. Yeah, yeah, me and uh, Zach Dorfman, another journalist, uh, wrote that story. Um, so, yeah, I, I figure that's a good place to kind of end things. Totally. Um, but, yeah, I'd like to start with um, prior to the Revolutionary War. Uh, and this is really where special operations per se, there's no such thing as special operations necessarily at that time, but this is sort of where we trace the lineage back to. Mm -hmm. And before the Revolutionary War, you had rangers um, who were semi-state sanctioned. Some of them worked for rich landowners. Some of them worked for, uh, you know, colonial governments. And they were trackers. They were trappers. They were outdoorsmen. Uh, they were people who could range. They, they could be like game wardens. They could be people who uh, went around the wilderness and they could conduct scouting or reconnaissance. Okay. And they could find out what's going on in this area. That's why you guys fucking rock forever. Yes. <laughs> and the first ranger, recorded ranger, that we have documentation for was a guy named Edward Backler in the year 1634. Holy shit. So this is, yeah, a long time ago. He was working for a wealthy landowner named William, uh, William Claiborne. And uh, as time went on, by the time you get to the year 1700, you have uh, references in the literature of ranger parties ranger troops um ranger companies or or the other way around companies of rangers okay. parties of rangers troops of rangers uh who could be hired 
um, <laughs> semi on a semi freelance basis, other times working for uh, a government. And Rangers fought actually in six conflicts, at least six conflicts prior to the Revolutionary War, uh, fighting against the American Indians and the French primarily in the French Indian War, the King James War, and other conflicts. Um, so we have a history of rangers in, yeah. in, in, uh, in America that go way, way back. I mean, 1634, people, <clears throat> you don't think about America before 1776, really, right? Even though, I mean, it's a country, everyone, people lived here and stuff, but you don't really, like, U.S. Army guys. Right. Was it technically U.S. Army? No, no. There no, was the, just rangers. There were just rangers, and then as we got up to the revolution, of course, the Continental Army. Um, and the Minutemen and all that yeah. sort of thing. But th- no, this is before that. Way before that. Yeah. Um, an interesting character, sort of the uh, patron saint of Rangers, is Robert Rogers. Uh, he, the first recorded instance of, of uh, Rogers' Rangers was 1756. He fought against the Indians and the French also prior to the Revolutionary War. Um, he's mentioned in all of the books about rangers he's like yeah he is the guy he's the big guy um which is kind of funny because although he is sort of like the archetypical ranger uh he was also prone to corruption uh he's known as being something of an inept administrator and a drunk and he switched sides a lot (laughs) oh that's bad yeah yeah he went over to hang out in england for a while um, came back and he tried to sign on with the Continental Army and George Washington wouldn't even see the guy. Oh, no shit, huh? Yeah, he was like, fuck off. Yeah, because yeah. he saw, uh, likely saw Rogers as being a uh, a royalist spy sure. at that point. Yeah. yeah, I mean, you're over there hanging out with the fucking king. Like... Right, right. So Rogers, the entrepreneurial uh, drunkard that he was, um, takes his services and offers them to the British, uh, which they accept. As a ranger, like as like a soldier. Yeah, yeah. And interestingly, there were also, um, if you like see the uh, television show Turn. Yeah, that a pretty solid show. Talks a lot about, you know, George Washington understood there was a, a real importance to intelligence and counterintelligence and scouting and so on. But in the show, you also see um, ranger companies uh, or mixed ranger companies of Native Americans and European colonists uh which is pretty historically accurate mm-hmm. there, there were native americans that were brought into you know quote unquote companies of rangers or parties of rangers why would they do that just to bolster the ranks or yeah to bolster the ranks and also i mean i i, I presume that the native americans just like the white settlers were also looking to make a living right you know yeah um so that's kind of the early history of the rangers um when we get into the revolutionary war uh, there were a few things. I mean, one thing I'd like to point out was Thomas Knowlton's Rangers that were right here in New York City. Okay. Uh, they served under Washington and fought the Brits as uh, Washington beat a uh, strategic retreat, if you will, right through Brooklyn. Yep. Uh, did the famous river crossing across the East River into Manhattan, and then ret- continued to retreat <laughs> in uh, uh, up into northern Manhattan and then in, into uh, Westchester County. Mm-hmm. And also at the time during the Revolutionary War, there are some other things that, you know, like I was reading this book, uh, 
Special Operations in the Revolutionary War, uh, written by a retired colonel. This was a really good book, um, and it points out to, although, again, there was no such thing labeled as, known as special operations. There were there was guerrilla warfare. There were these sorts of maritime raids, things that were very much in the, the milieu of special operations right. as we would look at it today. Uh, there was, for instance, the raid on Fort Ticonderoga with Ethan Allen leading the charge. The traitor, Benedict Arnold, Scumbag. jumped in on that, and he, he wanted to claim credit for it. He thought this was his way to get a star, to become a, to become a really? general. Really? Yeah. So he wanted... So they're fucking... So officers have been jerk-offs since back then. Yeah, that's correct. Yeah. Yes. And he jumps in and um, wants to kind of take credit for the whole thing. Um how much he really had to do with the success of the raid. I mean, it was really funny. The whole raid went, went off, and it happened in like 15, 20 minutes. Wow. And the raiders, the uh, the uh, colonists, uh, you know, the militiamen, immediately got into the private stock and became rip-roaring drunk in Fort Ticonderoga, which Benedict Arnold flipped the hell out about. Um. So, needless to say, I don't think things worked out for for Benedict Arnold the way that he thought it would. There were some other things uh, mentioned in the book. Also, there's uh, you know the the um, you know early American Navy, if you will. They they did a raid in Nassau um, on a British fort on New Providence Island, which is pretty interesting. Really? Yeah. Nassau, Bahamas. Yeah. Yeah. No shit. Yeah. So there were and there were again Ranger companies. active all throughout the revolutionary war and so that is kind of the uh the birth of american special operations if well, you i mean were. the revolutionary war like we were guerrillas like we yeah yeah we were fighting a regular warfare guerrilla warfare uh you know uh, as i mentioned with george washington's uh, strategic retreat and perhaps also his focus on intelligence and counterintelligence he, he understood that you know you weren't going to be able to go bone to bone with right. the british you know, we're going to have to fight in a regular campaign, mm-hmm. uh, which which we did uh, and was eventually successful. That's why we're here. Yeah. The Brits are in fucking England. Except yeah. we have Prince Harry. I don't know what he's doing. Yeah, well, I wish we could get rid of him. Um, <laughs> him, him and the wife. I find them. I, I like the wife. I find the British. I find the wife attractive. I, I find the British royals to be insufferable. Uh, sure. And I just can't stand listening to anything about them. Uh, there's nothing more boring than listening to a British royal whine or talk, for that matter. And I wish they would just go away. I mean, the, I wish they'd go away. The Prince Andrew interview was a ten out of ten. Like after the Epstein stuff, and he did that interview like a few years, uh, oh like a yeah, year later, yeah, where he was um, sweating, where he was saying, yeah, that the picture couldn't have been me and her, me with the girl who was trafficked. Yeah, because was like seventeen at the time. Because I don't, I don't hug people, and yeah. yeah. Oh, he said something like, I sweat or I don't sweat. Right, right. Like, bro. One of Epstein's accusers, Virginia Roberts, has made allegations against you. She was very specific about that night. Mm -hmm. She described dancing with you and you profusely sweating (laughs) and that she went on to have bath, possibly... There's a slight problem with with the sweating um, because uh, I, I have a peculiar medical condition which is that i don't sweat um or i didn't sweat at the time and that was oh actually yes i didn't sweat at the time because i um had suffered what i would describe as an overdose of adrenaline in the falklands war when i was shot at uh and i simply 
simply, it, it, was, it, was, it was almost impossible for me to, to, to sweat. On that particular day that, that, that um, uh, we now understand is the date, which is the 10th of March, uh, I was at home. Uh, I was with the children. I'd taken Beatrice to uh, a Pizza Express in Woking. Why would you remember that so specifically? Why would you remember a, a Pizza Express birthday and being at home? Because going to Pizza Express in Woking is an unusual thing for me to do. Did they not coach you before this? Well, you know what that is, though, is that is an interview with someone who has never faced any accountability for anything right in life ever. Yeah. And knows that he never will. He can literally sit there and tell you that, you know, yeah, it's all true. We sacrificed babies and nothing would happen. To right. Him. Yeah. No one's, he's not going to get through a perp walk. He's not going to no, jail. Never. That will never happen. No, no shot. I mean, technically, he's got immunity, right? Because he's a fucking state. He's like a he's a product of the state. Like he, he's. I guarantee you he's got some kind of diplomatic immunity. I don't know I don't know the ins and outs of the of the law, but I mean, yeah, it is on the books. You know, the British royals are there as part of, you know, the the British government. And you know he's like the he's like the second string, right? So he's not really he's not in the front doing like the ton of interviews and stuff. <laughs> yeah. yeah. You would think for this one, like, hey, maybe contract people out to like if they don't have it in house, which I'm sure they do to like run scenarios about the questions you're going to get and what your answers you are going to be. But like, that's like if you're afraid though, like if you're afraid of being put on the spot, like this guy has no, fear. but he's doing an interview bro about this. Like you think any normal journalist worth their salt is going to act. I mean, yeah, anybody yeah, yeah. with a brain who's not on like the pay- payroll, right? But that's, that's what a bubble they are there. They, they live in. It's madness. You know, dude. British, it's so ar- crazy. British aristocracy. I mean, they're kind of famous for that, aren't they? For sure. Yeah. They just live in a different fucking universe. Yeah. So anyway, the Brits suck. I like the Indian food in Britain, but so we kicked their ass out of here. Uh, fast forwarding, you know, going way forward to World War One, there really wasn't anything quite the same as the Rangers and the Revolution or the later incarnations of, you know, what we'll talk about in the in, with the OSS in World War Two in a moment. And if I were to, to speculate. I, I think that probably the reason why was because World War One was a war of attrition. Yeah. There were these uh, front lines. It was trench warfare. Uh, maneuver warfare had not really come into existence until World War Two, in the sense that we think of it today, at least. So there were shock troops mm-hmm. in World War One, And uh, there are some instances where, I don't know, maybe we could look back at it and, and, and find some sort of lineage there in special ops history. Sure. But World War One isn't really looked at right. um, in regards to this particular subject. I mean, it was a war of artillery yeah. and cannons. And chemical weapons. And chemical weapons yeah. and trenches and rifles and machine Ugh, guns. That must have been a fucking nightmare. Yeah. You see, you saw like the guys who, do the, who dig the tunnels? In mm. World War One, underneath no man's land. What the fuck, yeah. man! What yeah. a shit show. I mean, war is a shit show, right? Yeah, that one especially. Yeah. So yeah, World War One. So we get to World War Two, and uh, we start off World War Two pretty much with very little, in terms of what we would think of as uh, commando or intelligence gathering capability. Um, Bill Donovan, William Donovan, is asked by the president to establish some sort of capability modeled on, uh, at least initially, what the British have. 
And he ended up creating something that, you know, I, I think is uniquely American. He created the Office of Strategic Services. They were involved in uh, intelligence operations, propaganda operations, and commando operations, and what, what we would refer to today as unconventional warfare. That's like kind of sort of what the modern day, I mean, it's a precursor to the CIA. Yes, and the precursor to today's special forces. Yeah. Uh, both organizations trace their lineage back to the OSS. Um, I have, a, you know, I had a, a friend before he passed away. He, he was uh, he was a Delta Force officer, and he would always say, "We are not the SAS; we are the OSS." And he would point back to some of the founding documents of the OSS and, and, and point to how similar we are, even to this day, to the OSS. Because, like the like the what people want to they say that the formation at delta is based on sas yeah and and it drew it does draw heavily from that um and we'll we'll probably get into that a lot but for sure the british sas experience um shaped where that came from with um with the unit's founding officer uh charlie beck our bodies come in different shapes and sizes so doesn't it make sense that our weight loss plans should too That's the beauty of Noom. They build a personal plan that factors in dietary restrictions, medical issues, and other personal needs so your plan works for you. Noom doesn't restrict or shame when you want to treat yourself. Their flexible program focuses on progress instead of perfection. You don't have to give up carbs or anything. And with their daily lessons, you can learn something new about your food choices every day. After just a few days of using the app, I learned how to recognize cues for overeating and how to choose the right foods to feel full. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M.com. And check out Noom's first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for 100 healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold with but back to world war ii um the oss becomes very active in both theaters of operation there was uh just one uh there's so much and literally there's volumes written about the oss but just one example i'd like to highlight because i don't think it's been talked about um too much i tracked down the son of a oss officer this guy's name um the son is dan tyler moore the third his father dan tyler moore the second uh was a descendant of teddy roosevelt uh wow went to yale and remember back in those days i mean the first generation a lot of the oss guys a lot of the early cia guys it was the harvard princeton yale crew um so this guy was you know a, a blue blood if you will um and he was recruited into the OSS and um, sent to North Africa. And early on, before the war really even got started, um, some interesting stories about playing cat and mouse with the Nazis in Cairo. And one of his big tasks became eliminating Nazi couriers moving from sub-Saharan Africa into North Africa and then eventually to Nazi Germany because they were smuggling diamonds. No shit. And diamonds at the time were a, well, to this day, they still are. They're an industrial mineral as well. They, they are used in uh, drill bits. Mm-hmm. Uh, I believe they are used in like crankshafts and certain, um, certain industries as well. 
So diamonds had a industrial use. Yeah. And uh, they would, I mean, I guess they didn't make synthetic diamonds back then. No, no. So intercepting these diamonds um, became a critical part of, you know, uh, interrupting the supply chain to the Third Reich. Mm-hmm. And Dan Tyler Moore uh, played a role in that. That's um, pretty sweet. And, and apparent from what I'm told, uh, it was a question of essentially hiring assassins to take these Jesus guys out. Christ! Yeah, as they smuggled the diamonds, wow. as they start, and, and I, of course, I asked the question: after these guys were killed, what became of the bag of diamonds sure. they were carrying? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, that question remains unanswered. All right, you take it a little bit, a little toll. Maybe. Yeah, I mean, whatever. Uh, take a little piece off the top. You're in fucking northern Africa, fucking killing Nazis for fuck's sake. I mean. Well, I, well, I, I don't, I don't, I mean, I don't know that. I'm not alleging there's some sort of corruption or anything like that. This gentleman did, after the war, try to start up a string of hotels in Turkey. So, I mean, he was he was working for a living. Sure, <laughs> it wasn't like he was right, just sitting back. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and and also just interesting stories about the the gadgets and gizmos that were kicking around um, his father's house. After the war, uh, oh, they, 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 yeah, they had different devices um, that could be affixed on um, Nazi trains that had a solar panel on them so that it would detect or could tell the difference between cl- cloud cover and night and day as opposed to when the train went into a tunnel. Okay. So that instant blackout on the solar panel, the solar eye, would uh, be used on this device. It was used to uh, trigger explosives. No shit. Wow. Yeah, so you that's could, pretty and, slick. And they had this as far back as the 40s. Yeah, that's a slick. Yeah. Fucking 1940s doing this? So that the train would go into the tunnel and, and it would destroy the train, also destroy the tunnel, yeah, collapse the fucked. tunnel onto the train. Obviously, that makes it much, much harder to uh, clear that rail line. Right. If there's a whole there's a whole science behind how to derail trains and how to put explosives on train rails and maybe I shouldn't go into all of that but <laughs> especially because I saw in the news uh, uh, article yesterday there was a big train uh, derailing and um, the authorities are saying it was sabotage. What? Where? Yeah. Ah oh, shit! It's in all- the United States. Yeah, in the United States. I- I'll forward the article to no you. No shit. Um, so yeah, rail rail line sabotage is still a thing. In 2003, the CIA, uh, working with um, paramilitary components, derailed a 90 car train heading into Mosul, Iraq, just as the invasion, the 2003 invasion, kicked off. Wow. Yeah, there are other trail. Um, we can look at rail sabotage. Um, I mean, now it's big, especially World War II. Like that's how supplies mm-hmm, got there. Mm-hmm. I mean, sure, airdrops and stuff, but I'm sure trains played a huge fucking. Lawrence of Arabia engaged in uh, trail line sabotage. The Rhodesians sabotaged trail uh, rail lines. Um, People so... hate on it, bro. I'm gonna say it again because I said it when I did my half baked fucking Greek resistance show. People want to fucking uh, make fun of logistics, but they're important. I mean, without logistics, there's no war. Right. Uh, full stop. No bullets, no fuel, no food, no water. You're going to have a short without war. Without logistics, there's no nothing, dude. Well, I mean, this is a big part of why ISIS swept across Iraq so quickly, because you have all these, these cool units that American special forces trained for years and years. But if the Iraqi government is not supplying them with fuel for their vehicles and bullets and everything else, then how do you expect them to fight? Right. Um, so yeah, everything is, is logistics. That's hilarious. Um, so ridiculous. Some other, uh, interesting tidbits about World War II. Uh, we would be remiss if we didn't mention the Jedberg teams. 
the Jedbergs were multinational teams. It was a joint effort between the Office of Strategic Services and the British Special Operations Executive. And they were three-man teams parachuted behind enemy lines. And they were, uh, a comp- they were composite nationalities on the team of British, French, and American. Some teams had one of each, you know, one American, one French, one British. What's the train up like for that? Like it was, it was very short. It was on a very short fuse um, that these guys would be trained up and then deployed, you know, parachuted into France or wherever. They would link up with partisan forces, um, begin conducting raids, uh, sabotage. Uh Um, As D-Day kicked off, they could go in and secure a bridge, secure a rail line junction, um, before the Nazis were able to destroy it and slow down the Allied advance, um, or just secure it so that the, it, it was clear when the Allies yeah. got there. It was a dangerous job. A lot of these guys got hunted down by the Gestapo and uh, and killed and murdered. I mean, parachuting into fucking Nazi-occupied France yeah. is fucking crazy. At three a clip, you know what I mean? Like, just three guys. You don't really have backup. Like Completely insane. And there was also infighting. Um, amongst the partisans, uh, Jack Singlob did an interesting interview about this, uh, talking about how the uh, the partisans they were with would be having these squabbles with the communist partisans. Oh boy! And so the communist partisans would like when there's an airdrop coming in from from the UK, they would like get on the radio and they'd set up like a fake landing zone so that our, our pilot, the Allied pilots would like drop the resupply yeah. and the communists would get it. And meanwhile, the actual partisans was meant for standing there like, uh, well, guys, what? Oh, my God. Yeah. Fucking scamming, yeah. like. Yeah. For, so, I mean, that was a big a big deal with the, with the partisans. Um, then also in World War II, of course, when D-Day does hit, uh, Rangers are back into the fray. Um, Second Ranger Battalion famously scaled the cliffs at Point du Hoc. This is where the Ranger motto comes uh, from, Rangers lead the way, where uh, I believe it was, it was told to Colonel Max Schneider, uh who his commander said, well, God damn it, Rangers lead the way, and told him to get up the, up the cliffs. That's funny. And it stuck? Uh, yeah, and it stuck. And the uh, cliffs were, you know, the Rangers got bogged down on the cliffs. We're having a very hard time. Uh, the landing craft could fire these grappling hooks with lines on them, and uh, that was supposed to be how we were supposed to initially get a, a foothold on these cliffs and get up them. <sighs> the grappling guns failed. Um, they did not get. Um, they did not anchor up on top of the cliffs. So now you have these rangers down at the base of the cliffs, and they're getting shot at. Um, and, and some of them are getting injured. What eventually happened was there was some uh, rubble that was collapsed from the pre-assault fires. Um, so you had some big boulders on the ground, and some of the guys got up on there with a ladder actually, and put like a ladder up on top of one of these big boulders. And that's how they were initially able to get up there, scale up to the cliffs, and, and, and get that first foothold. Um, That's crazy. You know, when they got up there, they found out that the, um, the the whole point of this operation was to secure these cannons that were overlooking the beaches. Um, and then what they found were these were like telephone telegraph poles. They were decoys. No. Yeah. Um, but there were a couple of ranger privates who um, they took it upon themselves. Look, they found some tracks and they went down a muddy road and they did seize a bunch of Nazi um, cannons. I guess they were howitzers um, that had never they hadn't even been fired yet. Um, so they captured those. And uh, so 2nd Ranger Battalion gets up onto the, onto the top of the cliffs, and the Nazis counterattack. They took severe casualties. 
uh, more than half of the unit, as I recall. Um, but they did hold out for reinforcements, and uh, so this was one of the big ranger actions uh, of D-Day. Would you? Uh, I know I'm gonna I'm gonna bring it back to like weird layman bullshit because I'm you know not smart. Um, like Saving Private Ryan, those guys aren't rangers. Like the that company, right? It's in it. They're airborne guys. Uh, I'm trying to remember in the film if they were rangers or not. Um, and th- it's interesting that you mentioned this. So rangers in World War II were not airborne. They weren't. No, not until Korea. Huh. Yeah. So airborne was by its own thing. Yeah, it was its own thing. Um, and, you know, the guys who they made a uh, band of brothers about, 101st, they were obviously airborne. They yeah. jumped in. 101st Airborne Division today is not airborne. They're, That's hilarious. How yeah. is that fucking... They're, they're air assault or air mobile, so to speak. They fly in on helicopters, but they don't parachute. Um, I mean, they don't have that in their bag. I feel like all you guys fucking jump out of planes. No, no. 82nd Airborne, uh, 173rd Airborne, the 75th Ranger Regiment, and uh, I believe there's an airborne unit up in Alaska. 173rd is, is in Italy. Okay. Um, so those are all airborne units. Um, and there may be other airborne. And, of course, Special Forces is, is course, airborne. Yeah. Um all of the special ops units are, are at least static line qualified. So, uh, no, at this time, during World War II, the Rangers were not yet an airborne unit. Um, another uh, interesting aspect of the war is, meanwhile, we have the whole China-Burma-India theater in the Pacific. Uh, Merrill's Marauders were out there. Um, again, this is where they, he had uh, different colored teams around the theater, and this is where the Ranger colors come from, red, white, blue, green, orange, and khaki from the colors of Merrill Marauders' team. And the Ranger insignia has the Burmese star and sun on it from Burma in World War II, huh. that campaign. Uh, one of the interesting uh, things that happened during World War II with Rangers was also 6th Ranger Battalion, the raid at uh, Cabanatuan, uh, which was a POW rescue mission. And Colonel Musi and his uh, Sixth Rangers um, did a really, uh, frankly, brave infiltration behind Japanese lines in the Philippines. Um, snuck in. They get up to the uh, POW camp, and they had to low crawl through because it was all just shortened grass. They had cleared out all the vegetation around yeah. the POW camp. So the Rangers had to low crawl through this low grass. Um, to get up to the gates of the camp. Um, they initiated their raid with bazookas and machine gun Jesus fire, Christ. blowing up uh, blowing up Japanese pillboxes, got inside the POW camp. What's a pillbox? Like a hardened bunker okay, where, they, where they'd fire machine guns from. And uh, the, the raid was completely successful. They rescued POWs. And, like, these were, like, death march survivors. Like, the, the accounts. Wow. There's a great book. Uh, I believe it's Ghost Soldiers. Uh, written about this raid and um, the the inhumanity and the cruelty that these American POWs suffered at the hands of the Japanese is unreal. Um, and, you know, thank God uh, Sixth Rangers were able to rescue these guys and get them out of there. And we'll talk more about POW rescues as we go. It's, sure. a, it's an important subject here. Um, so those are some of the highlights. Um, oh, another element was the Alamo Scouts, um, and they provided intel for uh, Sixth Rangers for that raid. Alamo Scouts were another sort of mixed indigenous unit uh, that did a lot of that sort of unconventional work 
in the uh, in that theater of operations. And ra- today's Rangers trace their lineage back to the Alamo Scouts wow. as well. Uh, so then we get into the Korean War. Well, we put Japan in a microwave first, and then we go to the Korean War. Yeah, we dropped a bomb on them that was so big it made their penises smaller. <laughs> yeah, I know you guys want to cancel me for that. You're not allowed to say politically incorrect. Yeah, things. you're a big time journalist. I know I you're know. not allowed to say that. Look, I, I'm I, just a degenerate. I, 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 I have no grievances with um, with Japanese people today, and uh, and the the loss of civilian any civilian death is, yeah, is, is horrible, um, including Hiroshima and Nagasaki. However. What the Japanese were doing across Asia was reprehensible. It was worse, maybe, than what the Nazis were doing in the Holocaust. Yeah, it's on the level. Like, they were straight up uh, empire building, for sure. Like, you know, taking, going in. They they were waging genocide, ethnic genocide, in Manchuria and elsewhere. And the level of war crimes that happened in Japan, that the Japanese perpetrated, has never really been uh, reconciled the way that the Germans have had to deal with their past. It all got swept under the rug because we needed Japan as an ally against the Soviet Union. Uh, So there there was very few war crimes tribunals. There was never a real Nuremberg tribunal Mm -hmm. for what the Japanese did to Americans, but also across that uh, is a good to, point. to other Asians, yeah. to uh, other Asian communities, Supposedly like, Asian nations. So, like Southeast Asians specifically. Yes. Fucking hate Japanese and, and the Chinese also. And chi- yeah. So Because like, just stemming back from... So I, I, I recognize the uh, how horrible war is, including the, the dropping of the atomic bomb, but I, I'm not going to apologize for that. Um, I mean, you could debate it all day long, right? I mean... What was the alternative? The alternative was taking all of our troops and going into Tokyo, like, you know, invading mainland Japan and losing Which would have been how many people millions of casualties. Right. And look, the Japanese needed to be humbled at that time. What they did was wrong and it was reprehensible. And the United States humbled them and put them back where they belonged, which was not as some uh, some ethno nationalist power sweeping across the Pacific and across Asia. That was unacceptable. Sure. Yeah. So, yeah. We dropped the bomb on them. <laughs> that, that that could nip that in the bud. Yeah, and then listen, it. I guess this is more geopolitical, but I mean, we had we were the only ones with the bomb at the time. Yeah, and we wanted to show because if you know whoever didn't notice that, like, fuck these fucking Russians are fucking no joke. Like, you know, they just steamrolled fucking Germany after you know they just threw human suffering at them, but they did it. We got to show them what's up. That was definitely part of it too. Yeah. You know, just to show, let them know, like, hey, we're here now, so yeah, you got to get used to it. It's we're going to put a fucking McDonald's in Moscow, <laughs> you motherfuckers. <laughs> don't you even sweat it. Well, yeah, that's a whole other conversation about the conclusion of World War II in, in Europe um, and also in Korea um, with the Japanese. Well, that's a, that's a whole other subject. I'll have to save for another time. Hey, by the way, are we going to open up the uh, the yeah, rainbow cookies here? I got, I got these from Fortunato Brothers. In Williamsburg. My no, fucking... I got these because your sister was complaining about the cookies. She sucks, my sister. She's got no fucking taste. She's complaining about the cookies. And this is like the whole, look at this. This is a whole Bro. variety pack. You oh, look my at that. God. Look at that. Fortunato Brothers. I'm trying to be a fucking skinny guy, bro. I'm trying to find a girlfriend one, one for fuck's sake. One not going to hurt no, you. No, I know. Oh, man, I'm amped for my fucking commercial. It's going to be sick. Oh, look at that. That's red dye number three right I there. Know. Hey, Hawaii, this is Rod Giacomo from Giacomo's Trittery and Bakery. Uh, we got a beautiful place over here in Bath Avenue, 
Look at the fucking egg. It's organic. We're mixing it in with the with the uh, flour. If you got a gluten problem, you got to go somewhere else. We can't help you here. But, you know, if you like fresh bread, you like the best of the best, that's what we got over here at uh, Giacomo's Trattoria and Bakery. Uh, look at that. Look at that bread rise. Jesus Christ. Are you kidding me? We got a whole warehouse in the back. These are, this is my mother right here. It's my mom. This is uh, Lori. Wait, where's Lori? What are they doing over there? They're making fucking... What are you making? Empanadas? Fuck. Beautiful. Look at that. Look at that. We care about our baked goods. You understand what I'm saying? So next time you're around, come through. That's there's Lori, my mother. Beautiful. That's my brother Tony. Tony Kesarich. How are you, my man? And uh, yeah, well, this is uh, my ex Brenda. We split up, but I was too cheap to change the fucking commercial. She's a fucking bitch anyway. All right. When you hear your family, see ya. So we get into the Korean War. Korea happens. Um, Rangers are now airborne. Um, I talked to a Korean War era ranger at one point involved in a uh, airborne operation. So, uh, you know, airborne operations can be used as a think of it as like a flanking maneuver. You're getting behind the enemy lines. You're, you're you're inserting troops by the air that allow them to attack the enemy where they don't expect it. Right. Um, he told me about a big operation where they seized a dam in Korea, and uh, it was just a, a amazing story. He had an, an, an just an amazing experience in life in general. And this gentleman, who's a squad leader at the time, one of his privates uh, died in his arms. Oof. Uh, was shot and killed and died in his arms. And uh, his last words to him, uh, this dying soldier's last words, were full of grace. And he said, that was the day I became a Christian. No shit, huh? Yeah. Wow. That, I would think the opposite would happen. No, he became a believer that day. And that guy, he was, uh, he's from here. He's from Brooklyn. Oh, yeah? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Incredible story. He went on to serve in special forces. Being a parent can be really challenging. It's normal to feel uncertain about whether you're doing the right things to raise healthy and happy children. That's why Child and Family Resource Network focuses on connecting pregnant parents and those with kids under the age of five with free support services to help them build confidence in their parenting journey. Everyone deserves to have someone they can turn to for support with parenting. Visit childandfamilyresourcenetwork.org today. Being a parent can be really challenging. Child and Family Resource Network focuses on connecting pregnant parents and those with kids under the age of five with free support services to help them on their parenting journey. Everyone deserves someone they can turn to for help with parenting. Visit childandfamilyresourcenetwork.org today. Being a parent can be really challenging. It's normal to feel uncertain about whether you're doing the right things to raise healthy and happy children. That's why Child and Family Resource Network focuses on connecting pregnant parents and those with kids under the age of five with free support services to help them build confidence in their parenting journey. Everyone deserves to have someone they can turn to for support with parenting. Visit childandfamilyresourcenetwork.org today. Courses after the war. Um had a, a great career, and uh, <laughs> just an amazing life in general. You know, great guy. What's his name? Can you say it? Uh, I can. I'd have to look it up in okay. some of my work. Um, I, I, I believe his first name was Robert, and I, I'm just uh, 
cautious. I don't like to screw up people's names. Right I'm, sorry, I'm yeah. sorry I don't have it on me. Um, super nice guy, though. And um, then the other um, person I'd like to bring up in regards to the Korean War was another ranger, Ralph Puckett, who was recently awarded the Medal of Honor by President Biden for actions during the Korean War. And Colonel Puckett... Yeah, he was... He's alive. Yes. Yeah, 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 yeah. I saw it, yeah. Colonel Puckett was the, and I, I believe he still is, the honorary colonel of the Ranger Regiment. Oh, no shit, okay. So when I was a young Ranger, Colonel Puckett used to come out and talk to us every once in a while. Wow. Yeah, amazing. And he uh, he served in Korea, served in Vietnam. Uh, he, uh, again, just a great guy. And he would come out and he would talk to us about how important we are essentially he was like saying you guys the individual ranger the the team leader the squad leader like you're the ones that make the difference right. out here he would even though he's a, he's an old, old man at this point in the 2000s uh coming out to uh our after action reviews so after a training mission you do an after action review everyone sits down talks about what went right what went wrong we'd be out at uh kilo 22 at fort benning doing our ra- our raids and afterwards, you know, we'd be sitting there covered in, you know, sweat streaked camouflage paint on our faces and everything. And uh, Colonel Puckett would be out there at three in the morning to talk to us. And Holy like, shit. Uh, think, you know, think about this. Make sure you do your rehearsals. Don't bunch up on the objective. Uh, I was told my, my team leader actually told me that Colonel Puckett came out to his ranger school class out in Florida phase and was doing the rope bridges across the rivers. Holy and he, he must have been in his 70s that's at that crazy. point. Yeah. I mean, so Colonel Puckett um, was uh, and is a standard bearer. Uh, he he shows you how to lead the way. And uh, I, I, had a, I, and I had and I continue to have a lot of admiration for Colonel Puckett. And the action, you know, I, when I was reading his Medal of Honor citation, it, it made me think about maybe why he came and, and would tell us about the importance of, you know, the enlisted rangers. That action uh, was his, uh, he was a ranger company commander as a lieutenant, and they went and captured a hill, uh, a Chinese um, battalion counterattacked. They got hammered with indirect fire, and then the Chinese, like, attacking in human waves. Um, Colonel Puckett ran from foxhole to foxhole, you know, encouraging the men, keeping morale up. Um, Eventually, they had to withdraw. Um, Colonel Puckett's legs were shredded by uh, mortar fire. He told two Ranger privates to leave him behind. He, he said, go on without me. Jesus Christ. Um, you know, you, you guys can make it with that. You know, you guys can make it back to friendly lines. Uh, you know, in accordance with the Ranger Creed, as uh, every Ranger knows today, uh, never will I leave a fallen comrade. Uh, these two privates refused to leave their commander, and they picked him up, and they carried him back to friendly lines. Yeah, that's great, man. That's yeah. fucking sick. That's crazy. I can't even fucking mm-hmm. imagine that shit. Yeah, Colonel Puckett's the real deal. When you were in Ranger Battalion, like training up and stuff like that, you were a young guy, right? Twenty-one. Yeah, 20? I got the. I was nineteen when I got there. Okay, so like, Colonel Puckett mm-hmm. comes in. Do you know like what this guy's about? Do you guys really care? Because you guys are young dudes, you know, fucking ready to rock. Basically, I, I knew. I, I mean, I knew he was the honorary colonel. I knew he was like a legend from the Korean War. Okay. Um, I did not know all of the specifics right. about what about his career. Because I could see it like, you know, you guys are training your dicks off. You're young guys. You're not, you know, I was 
how like you kind of not take it for granted. I guess maybe take it for granted, it, right? That that happens when you get the VIPs coming by, which yeah, it, when, when it's like some general or like some officer that's not even in your chain of command. It's like, dude, why are you here? Why are you talking to us? Right. Colonel Puckett always come to us. And he was always very warm and very friendly, very encouraging. And, uh, and he did have some, some actual advice to impart on us. So, um, I never really felt that way about Colonel Puckett. And also he was just like a wealth of knowledge. Right. Like he, he could walk you like he would be, he's really the person to do this, this podcast sure. with, uh, rather than me, he can walk you through the entire history from mm-hmm. A to Z. Um, so no, it was great, um, to hear from him. And I mean, I was just so happy to see him being awarded the medal of honor, uh, at the white house the yeah. other day. It was literally a week, like a month, not even a few like weeks a month, ago, like a month ago. Yeah. yeah. Shout so out Colonel Puckett. So Rangers were finally airborne in the Korean war. Um, then we get into Vietnam. There's a couple of things that are worth mentioning here. One is that these quote unquote special operations capabilities, any kind of like Ranger or special forces capabilities, uh, even s- specialized capabilities like snipers. They were typically disbanded after every war. Um, after the war would end, be like, well, we don't need these guys anymore. You know, there's really no need. That's so for interesting. Because, uh, well, I mean, it's probably a combination of things. First off, it takes money sure. and funding to maintain specialized units. Mm-hmm. Um, let's be honest. We're also kind of cocky, paratroopers especially, cocky bastards. Right. Uh, the rest of the military looks at them as kind of a pain in the ass. <laughs> We're high maintenance. We go downtown. We get drunk. We throw fist to cuffs. Uh, right. Ha- you got to deal with that shit. Yeah, you got to deal with that. Uh, so I'm sure the military, um, you know, has their has their reasons for getting rid of these yeah. units. But it's also very short sighted um, because you know after every one of these wars, we all want to think we're never going to have another one. History has shown us otherwise. Right. So yeah. What happens? Listen, I get that, and it's like I mean, it should be the case, but. It never is. So you need to get you need to be ready. So what happens is we have to develop these capabilities from scratch every time we get into a war. Um, and you start seeing this happening in uh, in, in all these conflicts um, up until uh, we'll talk about in a moment here after Vietnam. Uh, what's also happening at this time now is the Cold War. Uh, the Cold War has kicked off uh, the dawn of nuclear weapons and, and a nuclear standoff with the Soviet Union. So we don't want to fight a straight-up slugfest with the Soviet Union. And, and the Soviet Union doesn't want to have a nuclear war with us right. either. So instead of fighting a straight-up war, we're going to fight a Cold War. We're going to fight a uh, war just below the nuclear threshold, right? Moscow rules. We're going to uh, wage unconventional warfare, guerrilla warfare. The Soviets are going to wage revolutionary warfare. We're going to try to wage counter-revolutionary warfare, counter-guerrilla warfare. And what we see is that, you know, the the Soviet Union can't directly attack NATO. We cannot directly attack the Warsaw Pact nations. So what happens from there is that we end up having a global battle for every third world nation all around the world. And we're looking to uh, especially shore up uh, key terrain features, uh, key maritime choke points like the Suez Canal, the Panama Canal, um, the straits that go uh, south of South Africa. Um, Some of these other key terrain locations, Mm 
um, become hot spots um, in the coming years. Vietnam, uh, there's a whole history there, of course, between North and South. Vietnam could be its own fucking, Yes, absolutely. Um, But long story short, we see the spread of the, uh, the, the communist menace in Vietnam. We want to demonstrate to our NATO allies that, you know, we have some lead in our ass that, you know, especially I think after the Suez uh, debacle in the 50s, um, we want to demonstrate that we are committed to fighting communism wherever it rears its head. And so we chose Vietnam as Which is wild. Also, the funny thing is, like, I like how you say it defeating communism because it's not about spreading democracy because like we we uh, you know supported dictators and stuff like as long as they were anti-communist you were our guy well we'd prefer to see a democracy but failing that right right yeah (laughs) right uh so we choose vietnam as a strategic battleground um, in hindsight, I, I'm sure many people wish that we had chosen another place, another battlefield where perhaps we stood a chance of winning. Or kept it just cold. Because the, the, the Vietnamese saw it, the, the difference between how America viewed the war and, and how the Vietnamese viewed it is, is just so stark. And the way we conflated Vietnamese nationalism with communism. You know, For the Vietnamese, they saw it as a war of reunification. Um, and we constantly saw it as a uh, as a battle against communism. Uh, for them, they saw it as a battle against colonialism. They had fought the Japanese there. They had fought the French. Now here's this other group. Yeah. And and we never intended to turn Vietnam into a colony. But if you're a Vietnamese person and you see five hundred thousand American troops in your country, what's the fucking difference? Yes. Yeah. Right. Without a doubt. So, with all of this in mind, President Kennedy. Um, sees the importance that we are going to place on guerrilla warfare in various forms of irregular warfare moving into the future. And so that's why Kennedy authorized Colonel Yarborough uh, the uh, wearing of the Green Beret for special forces and uh, helping to create special forces. Same thing with the Navy SEALs. JFK had a hand in that. Um, he had an understanding that we were going to fight war in a different way in the coming decades. So, in uh, the Vietnam conflict, we have uh, LERPs, who later evolve into ranger companies. They start off as long-range patrols, then long-range reconnaissance patrols, then ranger companies. And these were guys who were a, uh, attached to different infantry or cavalry units around Vietnam. And they operated in small six-man teams. They would go and operate... Um, using that term enemy lines, or let's just say contested areas and do reconnaissance for the infantry. Units. Yeah. You're going into a hot, like, yes, you know, you're going to where big army's going to go and you're going with six guys. Right. Or five other. And, guys. um, I mean, it, it, this was really the, the sort of accounts and the stories I read that so fascinated me with the military and with special ops and made me want to become a part of it. Just the, these six guys who have balls of steel um, they're on their bases, these fire bases, training all the time for every contingency. They're taping up all of their gear so there's no metal on metal, nothing rattling. Mm-hmm. They're doing every little thing they can do to main, be as stealthy as they they're can. They're fucking ninjas, yeah. They're, they're going into these hot areas um, where there's enemy patrols all around them, and they would go for a week without even speaking, just using hand and arm signals and you know, forming up in small patrol bases and staying on watch. I mean, it was just really incredible what they did. 
Um, you had the SEALs, of course, also doing a lot of patrolling and riverine operations around the Mekong Delta. Uh, they they operated in a in, in riverine ops and maritime ops, um, but also on land doing doing patrols in the jungle and, and through the swamps. Uh, special forces all over the country, um, including special projects Omega, Sigma, Delta. Um, Delta was uh, also doing reconnaissance within Vietnam. Omega and Sigma were doing intelligence and reconnaissance in um, Laos and Cambodia. Uh, And then you also have the Phoenix program. The Phoenix program was uh, mostly staffed by SF, but also in conjunction, it was worked with the CIA. And their job was to eliminate the Viet Cong shadow government in South Vietnam. Uh, it became super controversial when it got leaked to the press and Congress started getting wind of all of it. And it got a, it got a, so, uh, somewhat of a bum rap of being an assassination unit. Um, it's a little bit more complicated than that's that. That's kind of how, like, that's like the headline about the Phoenix right, program. about the Phoenix yeah. program. But it's, it's legitimate in the sense of what they're trying to accomplish. I mean, if you're trying to create a, a sustainable non-communist hopefully democracy in, in, in South Vietnam, you're going to have to eliminate the Viet Cong shadow government in, that exists in basically every village. Right. Um, and that's what the Phoenix Project aimed to do. Now, the other program out there that's worth mentioning is MACV SOG, which is MACV is simply Military Assistance Command Vietnam, which was like a, a huge conventional command. Yeah. Um, within that was SOG, Studies and Observations Group. And this was a highly classified program at the time. They were doing um, ops across the fence, so to speak, into Laos and Cambodia, also operating in about six, seven-man teams. Uh, Usually it would be five indigenous personnel and two Americans. The Americans would be the the leader was the 1-0, and then the the assistant team leader would be the 1-1. That would be their call sign. And these guys, I mean, I'm going to shout out fucking – team house you've had some mac v sog yes. guys these guys have seen probably some of the worst shit craziest shit that yeah. there's ever been just absolute mayhem it's a it's a high water mark in special operations yeah. history yeah yeah that needs to be like you know set because they're fucking it's fucking crazy the stories mm-hmm. sorry i'm eating the, the right. cookies here um skinny fuck it's fine MACV SOG, as I said, yeah, it's a high watermark in, in our history. Um, I've been privileged to know and interview some of these gentlemen. Absolutely, as you said, absolutely insane what they were able to pull off. They were inserted behind enemy lines, two Americans, and then five indigenous personnel. A lot of times they were Montagnards. Sometimes they were Chinese nuns. Um, and they were being actively hunted down by... NVA battalions, brigades, regiments. Um, That's nuts. Yeah. That's fucking insane. So they would insert in these really tiny landing zones by helicopter. um, Sometimes they were on the run the entire time. Right. Yeah. I mean, I see like the minute they fucking get there, they're probably under fire. There were SOG teams who inserted. And were never heard from again. They never even made their first comms window. Fucking insane. I think what's interesting with 
there's much, much more to Mac V. Sog. Right on, yeah. Um, and, and there's some interviews, as you mentioned, on, on the team house. We interviewed John Stryker Mayer, um, John Mullins, uh, Nick Brockhausen. All those guys served in, in SOG. Um, what's interesting about SOG also, as well as the Phoenix program, you're looking at something that's sort of like a proto-JSOC, which we have today, the Joint Special Operations Command. MACV SOG, because it brought in a lot of SF, it brought in SEALs, it brought in the CIA, um, it brought in all these different elements um, that are now sort of operating in, in a joint environment. So you're starting to see, in my opinion, a sort of embryonic form of JSOC starting sense, to yeah. materialize. Um, you know, there are still to this day, um, you know, over 100 Green Berets who are listed as MIA have not been recovered. Um, DPAA, which handles the recovery, they still list 1,584 Vietnam veterans as MIA. That's fucking in, wild. In Vietnam, Laos, and Cambodia. And if there's anything to take away from maybe this podcast, you know, I hope people will consider contacting their congressmen and asking them to place uh, additional resources at the disposal of DPAA to go and repatriate these American soldiers back to the United States for uh, so their remains can be properly buried. As you can imagine, locating um, and recovering an American soldier's remains deep in the jungles of Laos or Cambodia is exceedingly difficult. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's a needle in the fucking haystack. Yeah. It's a needle in a needle stack, honestly. There's no shot. I mean, it, it's close to impossible probably with the resources, you know, but you still need to give it a fucking go. You have guys who went down in helicopter crashes that exploded. I mean, there, there are some who sadly... I will probably never be able to recover. Yeah. Um, there are others who can be recovered. Um, it's just, it's a lot of work. It honestly right. is. It's a lot easier to locate the MIAs from World War II. Um, you think about like in, in Europe and the European theater, right. um, they're much easier to recover. So I just want to, I always want to highlight that and we will circle back on the MIA issue in a bit. Uh, final thought on uh, the Vietnam conflict. Again, this is a subject I, I could talk about for hours and yeah. hours. Um, but the last thing I'd like to bring up is the Sun Tay Raid. This was, again, a POW rescue mission. There were American POWs being held in North Vietnam. We got wind of where they were at, and we began uh, recruiting and training a, uh, a force of uh, special forces soldiers to go and run a POW rescue mission. and In northern Vietnam. Yes. So we had to uh, locate or um, identify who was going to be on this team, put them into isolation. They started, I believe it was down in Florida, actually, where they did the, um, where they did the rehearsals mm -hmm. for this mission. And then, I, I, um, again, I believe they launched out of Thailand because Military Assistance Command was, like, hopelessly infiltrated by communist spies. No shit. Yeah, and, and the MACV SOG guys knew this, too. It was to the point where the SOG guys would send up false grids to MACV. Whoa, what a shit show. Because they they would get compromised at every LZ oh. because uh, the, it was being leaked. So the Sun Tay Raid, uh, they went through this whole process. They got everyone ready to go. Um, they launched the operation 
Uh, they successfully raid the POW camp. Unfortunately, the POWs had been moved um, just like several days prior. Um, so the mission ended in failure. The POWs did hear the raid happening. They were that close. And so it provided some morale for them that it, at least they understood they were not forgotten. Right. That America and the American military will do everything possible to recover our POWs. Um, we do our best to recover our MIAs. Um, it's still sometimes things don't work out the way we want right. them to. Yeah. But the effort was being made. They were they were not forgotten. That's insane. That's intense, dude. Fucking they hear it whatever miles away. Yeah. And again, once again, we're going to come back to this subject of POW rescues. And I just want to uh, just to point out here again, we had to recruit the force, train the force, have them do their rehearsals and then deploy them on the operation. What year was this? Oh, geez. This was towards getting towards the tail end of the war. I, I don't have the date in front of me. Um, we'd have to look it up. That's fucking crazy. Yeah. They had to recruit, like build it up right there. From scratch. Know. Right. And then, hey, all right, guys, deep behind enemy line. I mean, a POW camp, it's probably one of the more secure places you assume. Mm -hmm. You're right. Like besides like fucking Ho Chi Minh's fucking house, <laughs> you know? Yeah. So that that was it was called Operation Ivory Coast. So the Vietnam War ends. Um, the military is in a, not a great state after Vietnam. It wasn't very popular to be in the military. It wasn't very popular to stay in the military. Um there wasn't a lot of resources. Morale wasn't so great. You Let gotta, me ask you this, okay? You're a pretty even keel guy. You call it how you see it. You 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 chase the truth before everything else. Was Vietnam a quagmire? Yeah, it I don't want, and I hate saying it like that. Like just po like lumping it all into one word like that because, you, like you said, fifteen hundred plus guys still MIA. Real fucking people died. Real people came back fucked up from this, on drugs from this. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, there's real deal consequences. Do you think it was a quack, like a bad move? Yeah, I do. Um, and I have the luxury, of course, of having been born in 1983. So my entire uh, views of Vietnam are retrospective. Right. Um, reading the accounts of veterans and, and reading, you know, the, the, the literature on, uh, on Vietnam. I, I, have that, I have that luxury. Um, the guys who served in Vietnam didn't. I think it was a mess. Um, I think, you know, even in Henry Kissinger's book, uh, Diplomacy, he points out that in retrospect, probably it would have been better to hold the line in Thailand rather than in, in South Vietnam. For the reasons, uh, the complications I mentioned with South Vietnam earlier, Thailand actually had a more sustainable, legitimate government with some you know, uh, predispositions towards democracy, working with the United States. If we were going to build a firewall against communism, it would have made a lot more sense to do it in Thailand and choose that as our battleground as opposed to South, South Vietnam. Yeah. Um, yeah, Vietnam was, a, it was a mess. And, uh, as we can see this whole experience we're going through with Afghanistan, I hate to, there's always the risk of making superficial, this is like that comparisons. Right. But in my research and some of the things I've been working on right now, some of the comparisons are, are hard to ignore. The way we were um, bombing, uh, the strategic bombing of Laos and Cambodia, the pressure we were putting on the Ho Chi Minh Trail to try to force the Vietnamese to negotiate with us in Paris. It does have echoes 
of the pressure that we tried to put on the Taliban the last three years or so, four years, um, to make them bleed, to make them hurt so bad that they would come and negotiate right, with there's us no other choice. in Doha. And in both cases, I would argue that there was a, uh, a, a, a sort of lack of tactical efficacy in, in that there was no line. There's, there's a profound disconnect with our strategic objectives, that these things just did not marry up with one another. And this plays into why, but we have to call it like it is. And I recently received a letter from uh, Jim Gant, a Green Beret whose heart and soul is in Afghanistan, maybe more than anyone else. And he wrote me this letter and he said, uh, you know, a lot of guys are holding their heads down right now. They shouldn't. They should be proud of their service. But also we have to understand we were soundly defeated at a strategic level in Afghanistan. And as veterans, I think that's something that we have to come to terms with. Yeah, I think it's tough, too, to thread that needle. Right? It's very difficult. Yeah. Uh, it's very difficult, um, especially for uh, you know the subject of this podcast is special operations. And the thing that we fear the most is failure. Right. And every single one of us, I, I mean, we're basically selected on the basis that we will rather die then fail. <laughs> you think about our the whole selection process. Right. You have you have guys who will walk until they collapse and die <laughs> before before they'll throw the towel in. So that's the which that's, has literally happened. It, it has happened. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so you, you that that's the selection criteria, and that's the type of person that winds up in these units. So admitting to a failure is very difficult. But I think for our own sake of mind, for our own mental health. Um, in order to derive the correct lessons from history, this is something that we're all going to have to come to terms with in the coming years. Well, we, and we can talk about that more later. Right. So after Vietnam, the, the United States military is not in a good place, no. to say the least. And you also have now in the 1970s the rise of international terrorism. You have aircraft hijackings. You have... Uh, all these Palestinian nationalist groups. You have um, all, all sorts of things going down. Again, a new form of irregular warfare, mm -hmm. a new form of guerrilla warfare that we are not directly confronting the communist menace, but we are fighting them, arguably. <clears throat> the Soviet Union was sponsoring certain terrorists like Wadi Haddad, as that came out when the KGB archives were opened up, sponsoring him. There's a little bit of a wink, wink, nod, nod, nod with uh, Abu Nadal, allegedly. He, he made some very interesting trips to East Germany. Uh, that the Soviets may have been sponsoring some of these characters um, to do aircraft hijackings uh, and other acts of terrorism in order to weigh us down, to, to um, tie up our resources, chasing around what is now a strategic threat, that terrorists are able to take hostages, fly them around in airplanes, and make political demands against the United States. And then get them. And then start executing hostages yeah. and dumping them out on the tarmac. Um, so they're literally, they're, they're able to hold not just American citizens hostage, they're able to hold American policymakers hostage. Now, how is the United States going to cope with this new type of threat? You can't send a fucking quarter million uh, troops down there. You know what I mean? Like, that's, right. 
Right. That's trying to kill like an elephant with a fucking uh, pea shooter. And it doesn't work, you know. Um, so it's this new form of warfare that is being waged against the United States. And uh, we were slow, uh, I guess you could say, to respond to it. There's a series of escalating threats. Uh, you had uh, the Israeli raid on Entebbe uh, in Uganda, where uh, you know Israeli hostages were taken and they were uh, flown to Uganda. The Israelis embarked on again. This is a, a high water mark in special operations history. A, a daring commando raid to free their hostages. They used a, supr- a surprise. Um, by coming, flying in in the middle of the night, they used a deception campaign that they, they made their vehicles that they drove up to the, uh, the air, the, um, airfield lobby or hangar area. in. they made them look like the Ugandan presidential convoy of, uh, Idi Amin. So it had all these special ops elements incorporated into it. And it was very successful. Um, Yanni Netanyahu, the commander of the operation was tragically killed. Um, by friendly fire on that operation. Um, but he died a, a real Israeli war hero, rescuing all those uh, hostages. But when the United States looked at that, we see this is something we can't do. We don't have this capability. You had another incident happen where, um, geez, I think it was Red Army Faction, actually. Um, they they took some hostages and flew them down to Mogadishu. GSG-9 uh, is a sort of a border security counterterrorism unit back in those days from the from Germany. They flew down there to Somalia and they executed a um, an aircraft takedown. And they got lucky more than anything, um, but it was successful. Did they were they the ones that blew Munich? Uh, that was a. What are you talking about in like regards to Munich? When they were going to the helicopters and shit, and they start they open fire on the. Was it GSG-9? I don't know. That's what I'm just saying. It may have been. It may have been GSG-9 snipers, but I'm not sure offhand. Um, And again, that was another Palestinian group. Mm -hmm. So you have that happen. Again, the United States isn't quite sure how to respond to it. Uh, Then another game changer was the Hanafi incident in Washington, D.C. And... This happened, there was a a schism, there was a split between Islam Nation and this dude named Khalis um, between what became a a sort of Sunni Orthodox brand of Islam um, that that this part of the black community was practicing. And they split off from Islam Nation. Uh, Khalis was very, very critical of Islam Nation at that point. And what happened was uh, some... People uh, from Islam Nation went into this guy's house while he wasn't home. They took the women down into the basement and shot them. Jesus, fuck. And they drowned four of the kids in the bathtub and drowned an infant in the sink. Oh, my God. Uh, When one of the murder, it was actually a a Philly, uh, an African-American police detective, uh, police officer from Philly, went undercover and um, very quickly got one of the killers to confess while he was wearing a wire. Holy smokes. It goes to trial. <clears throat> one of the murderers gets acquitted, and Collis loses his mind at this point. And him and his followers take over several buildings in Washington, D.C. I think some of them were Islamic centers. One of them is where the mayor's office and, like, the state councilor or state council has, <laughs> has their office. Um, they killed, a, killed one guy in the process of this. So... 
this is a big holy shit moment. Right. And remember, this is like 1970s. Uh, we don't really have the capability to deal with this kind of shit. Yeah, there's no, like how we think of it today. There's no SWAT even. Right. There's nothing like that. Um, and the call goes to Fort Bragg. So Fort Bragg has special forces soldiers starting to spin up like, okay, plan this thing out. How are we going to do this? So they're legally, there are different ways that, that, that this could be done. The, the president would probably have to sign off on posse comitatus, or maybe the SF guys would just work as advisors. It never even really got that far. The plan, I talked to one of the guys involved in, uh, involved in this. Oh, man. And he, uh, he told me the plan was very rudimentary. We were going to repel from helicopters up onto the roof, hopefully not get tangled in the radio antennas up on the roof, make our way inside, shoot the bad guys, and hope not too many good guys got oh, killed in the crossfire. Oh, my God. Because the, 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 there was no such thing at that time as counterterrorism. Right. All these tactics, techniques, and procedures had yet to be developed. So these guys just kind of had this job thrown at them and told, like, hey, figure it out. Don't try not to shoot as, uh, civilians. Um, thankfully, some uh, ambassadors from the Middle East um, intervened. They, they negotiated with the Hanafi Muslims and got them to surrender themselves. So thank God uh, nothing further happened. But now... It's like, okay, we can't ignore this terrorism issue anymore. It led to the creation of the FBI's hostage rescue team because we need a domestic capability. Um, but we also need this overseas capability that can go and chase around hijacked aircraft and free hostages as needed. Um, so this is where we enter Colonel Charlie Beckwith. Colonel Beckwith had been batting around this idea of a counter... Even to say it's counterterrorism is maybe too much at the time. But a, an, a unit that can execute unilateral, unilateral surgical strikes um, that can do POW rescues, like we've been talking about so far through this, through this podcast, that the idea that we're going to build up these capabilities from scratch, mission to mission, just doesn't cut it. Right. Like, it can't be amateur hour. Right. We have to have a force that is professionally selected and quick and trained right and then standing by for that emergency to occur we can't do all of this it's kind of wild that they waited till the 70s well i mean it was one of those things and it's the u.s government okay so it's one of these things you can ignore it until right. you can't anymore right. yeah and there's also a lot of resistance there's a lot of bureaucratic infighting and a lot of resistance and i could see the hangover vietnam hangover then yeah yeah if they're pitching a fucking quick reaction force kind of thing like people would be like what are you crazy right and, and it's, i get it and it's going to cost a lot of money right and it's going to take up a lot of funding so we get to this point um colonel beckwith had already been batting around these ideas um probably back to at least since the mid 1970s when he was at the war college he wrote his thesis paper on the subject so he was thinking about it he had done a um exchange program with the sas so these ideas were already kicking around in yeah. his mind and he was already kind of heading in this direction after these incidents the the mangadishu uh aircraft takedown the raid on Entebbe, and then the hanafi incident they finally gave it the green light and they said okay charlie build this unit do it um, during a meeting, <laughs> the, uh, a general told Colonel Beckwith, listen, uh, if anything, any other emergency comes up, I'm going to call you. And he's going to, and, and Beckwith says, well, that's not going to do you a lot of good. I need two years to select and train my force. Right. And he's like, listen, Beckwith, you didn't hear me. 
I just said, if an emergency happens, I'm calling you. So now you have this situation where there's this two-year gap. What do we do? So the mish, this gets this problem gets kicked down to Colonel Montel at okay. Fifth Special Forces Group um, out on Fort Bragg, and they tell him to build an interim counterterrorism unit, a sort of stopgap that's going to be able to cover down on this until Charlie gets his unit up and running. And that unit became uh, called Blue Light. Okay. And uh, Colonel Mo- uh, Montel, who's uh, served in Vietnam, loved by his men, uh, called in his sergeant major, uh, got everything organized. They selected guys. A lot of them were Sunte Raiders. A lot of them, uh, the vast majority of them, probably almost all of them, had served in Vietnam. Um, so these guys were like hard core dudes i mean you got to understand like this is a different generation too think about what do those guys do after like now there's opportunities for guys like that yeah back then in the 70s when it was like it was different yeah there's no like contracting really and this was a different breed of guys man i mean these were some hard dudes and it was a generation of of men they were children of vietnam uh and they were the type of guys like if if you got into their face, they're going to get right back in yours and say, "Well, what the fuck are you going to do about it?" Oh, to like superiors, to anybody. Yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, the, a lot of these dudes, they, they would throw fisticuffs. I, uh, they were hard, tough men, and they didn't take no shit. I mean, bro, if you go through the kind of shit that they gone through, like, yeah. I don't even know how you can fear much after that. Yeah, yeah. You know? So Blue Light gets uh, stood up, and they start doing all kinds of training. Um, again, they're developing the the tactics from scratch, basically. Um, they're doing parachuting. Uh, they're doing, uh, they create a, a kill house. They create all these fuselages. They were going around the country uh, training on aircraft to take down aircraft. Uh, I feel like that was the big fucking, everyone was yeah, stressed out, it, like, worried it, about it that. It was. Um, and, and one of the big scenarios at that time was like that they would jump in rangers. They would form a security perimeter around the aircraft. And then the special forces soldiers would halo into the middle of that security perimeter. And they would go and do the raid and take yeah. the aircraft. Uh, that, that was like an early concept about how this would work. Um they, uh, Dead A even, uh, or I'm sorry, not Dead A. That's another subject. Yeah, yeah. Um, Blue Light even uh, recruited a young woman. She was a intelligence analyst, uh, Katie McBriar, um, who I've been able to interview. A wonderful woman. She was like an E4 at the time. And Colonel Montel sees this need that we need people who don't look like hardcore, snake-eating Vietnam veteran Green Berets. Yeah. People who can get close and gather intelligence. So they bring in Katie, and she can disguise herself as a nurse or an airline stewardess or whatever the case yeah, may be. Yeah, women are less threatening. Yeah, yeah. And, and she could parachute like everyone else. She, she shot a forty-five. She has a, a whole bunch of uh, championship pistol marksmanship oh, trophies. So sweet, that she yeah. yeah, yeah. She's a really tough woman. Um, and she integrated. I mean, the guys were not used to working with women at sure. all. Yeah, these this, guys are fucking... Neanderthals, and yeah. I say that with the most respect this is, possible. This is 1977. I'm a fucking Neanderthal. 1977. It was a different world. Sure. But they all came to love her um, and, and really appreciated her and what she did. Meanwhile, Colonel Beckwith is um, running uh, special forces and rangers through his selection process. And then their, their training process, called the Operator's Training Course, 
running OTC number one and then OTC number two, the unit goes into uh, its final um, uh, validation exercise, right? So all the VIPs are out there watching it. Um, they did a, an aircraft, a simultaneous operation taking down an aircraft in a building. And it was successful. Uh, at that time, Delta Force got the thumbs up. They were good to go. Um, and blue light was now seen as redundant and they were stood down, which creates, it, it, it still to this day creates a lot of um, animosity. Sure. And there was also a lot of animosity between the Special Forces soldiers and Charlie Beckwith because of his time commanding Project Delta in Vietnam. And again, this whole subject of the birth of counterterrorism, we can go into another time perhaps because it's so in depth. But this was, in, in, this is a thumbnail sketch right here of the birth of counterterrorism. Uh, I, I believe it was the day or close to it, the day that Delta Force got the thumbs up that they were now activated as an official unit that Iranian, quote unquote, students took oh, wow. over the American embassy in Tehran. That's fucking why. That's so like, I don't know what the poetic justice is a bad word, I guess, but it's just fucking crazy. It's and such a crazy so this is the first mission for Delta Force, Operation Eagle Claw. And the force goes into isolation and they begin training. The intelligence officers and the, the entire planning cell, the Pentagon, has to put together a sort of ad hoc planning cell for all of this. Yeah. Delta Force is doing rehearsals. Um, there's a lot of um, problems working with the CIA, an organization that gathers strategic intelligence, where Delta Force really needs tactical intelligence. Right. They need to know what's the door made out of. They need uh, the specific shit. They need the nuanced stuff, is, not who's fucking who. And Is there a fence around the yeah. building? How many bad guys are inside? Are, are, what are the windows made out of? Are they pane glass? Are they single panes? Or are they double panes? Like These are all the kinds of questions that an, that an operator needs that a CIA spook so like I know what the guy know. wants, drinks for coffee. Does that help in the morning? Right. So, the, so there's, a, there's even an ad hoc um, intelligence cell that was created for all of this. Um, interestingly... There was, um, there's another unit, another clandestine special forces unit in Berlin called Detachment A, which is an uh, amazing, amazing unit and amazing history there we can talk about sometime. Um, two of those guys, fluent German speakers, went undercover as German businessmen to Tehran. Whoa. And they actually got pictures in front of uh, the buildings, like with their arms around the Iranian guards oh, wow. and stuff. Like, hey, bro. One of them, I was told, even got inside the building. And like snap some pictures. Wow. So yeah, balls, wow. balls. Um, of course, all of you are probably familiar with the Argo incident from yeah. the Ben Affleck film that there were some embassy personnel who were outside when the embassy was taken over. The CIA did a big operation with the Canadians to smuggle those guys out, um, which was very successful. But Delta Force is going to have to go in and get the rest. Being a parent can be really challenging. It's normal to feel uncertain about whether you're doing the right things to raise healthy and happy children. That's why Child and Family Resource Network focuses on connecting pregnant parents and those with kids under the age of five with free support services to help them build confidence in their parenting journey. Everyone deserves to have someone they can turn to for support with parenting. Visit ChildAndFamilyResourceNetwork.org today. So if I'm out. That's fucking nuts, mm -hmm. first off. Like, that's crazy that they go in. Oh, bro, that's insane. This uh, this turned out to be a watershed moment for U.S. Special Forces or U.S. Special Operations. 
for counterterrorism, there were problem after problem after problem being thrown at the planners at Delta that they would have to overcome right. and figure out all of these things. Um, the operation was incredibly complex. And again, we have to look at it. This is 1980. We did not have any sort. There's no such thing as special operations aviation at this time. No stealth helicopters. No. No fucking dogs with night vision. Go- you know what I mean? Like none of that. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So we planned uh, a very complicated operation that we were going to fly the the Delta operators were going to fly in and land at a staging ground known as Desert One. Helicopters were going to fly in from an aircraft carrier off the coast, meet at Desert One. The operators would then crossload onto the helicopters. They would fly to a second staging ground known as Desert Two. At Desert Two, there were guys already, some of the aforementioned guys we already had on the ground would have pre-positioned like two and a half ton trucks, things like that, transportation vehicles that the operators would, they would spend the night at Desert Two. The next day they would board the vehicles. They would drive them into Tehran, hit the embassy, seize the embassy grounds, rescue the hostages. Um, By the way, the objective area, the embassy grounds was so big, Delta couldn't handle, two Delta squadrons couldn't handle it by on their own. Charlie Beckwith reluctantly had to bring in a small force um, from Detachment A in Berlin um, because those guys had a counterterrorism mission. So a bunch of them were brought in, and they would have handled taking down the Chancellery Building or the, the MFA Building, the Ministry of Foreign Affairs Building, and that would have been their responsibility. So once all of this was completed, the rescue team and the, uh, the hostages were going to move to a soccer stadium where the helicopters would fly in and evac all of them out. So yeah, that's crazy. Bro. It's a v- in yeah. the middle of Tehran, um, a very complicated in the middle of operation. a city. Yes, and I've talked to guys who were there, um, who were part of this force. Um, you know, Sergeant Major Mike Vining, one of the original members of Delta Force. Uh, you know, he was on the assault team for that. Did the rehearsals? They knew the whole thing backwards and forwards. Yeah, they did it so many times. And I asked him the question. I was like, if you got to the embassy, do you think you could successfully execute this operation? And he said, yes. He's like, I be- really? He said, I believe if we got there, we could have done it. But sadly, what happened was um, on the infiltration to Desert One, the helicopters hit a sandstorm. The pilots were pretty much physically and emotionally spent by the time they got there. They're so exhausted. Sure. Yeah. Um, a couple so there's a thing in these operations called minimum force it's the minimum amount of soldiers or helicopters or trucks or assets that you can hit the objective with they had a couple helicopters break down they were below the threshold of the minimum force already already so colonel beckwith following the protocols they had set up he made the the right decision and he called the mission off he said we we can't do it we're going to have to come back next time we're going to have to try again so he canks the mission. Now they're beginning the procedures to exfil off of Desert One and head back. Uh, during that time, um, one of the helicopters gets lost in the rotor wash, and it comes down on a C-130 uh, aircraft, a uh, fixed-wing aircraft. A um, bunch of Mike uh, Sergeant Major Vining was in that aircraft. Just flames, fire comes all through the aircraft, um, and they, uh, they jump off of that. Um, the pilots unfortunately perish in, in the in the fire. 
at this point, it, it was called the debacle in the desert for a reason. It was a mess. Right. It really was a mess. Um, they got everyone out of there, but now the mission had to be scrubbed. They began planning for a second desert or a second eagle claw um, known as, uh, I, I believe it was known as honey badger, as I recall. So there's going to be a second attempt. It, it never happened. That was my stage name. <laughs> Mine's Robin Sage. <laughs> uh what, what ended up happening was uh, Ronald Reagan came into office and uh, they released, the Iranians released all of the hostages. I remember reading like uh, when Carter was driving to the inauguration, they were like still on the phone, like negotiating terms for like the, the eventual release or whatever. There's a lot of funny stuff. I mean, the vice president like asked in like shock, like to Charlie Beckwith, like, you're not going to shoot to kill when you raid the embassy, are you? And he's like, hell yeah, we are. We're going to shoot them right between the eyes. And, and if any of the hostages pick up a gun, we're going to shoot them too, to be honest with right. you. You know? And, uh, and and it was just funny. The vice president was like sh- so shocked by this. Like, you're not going to shoot them in the shoulder? Yeah, shoot them in the leg, leg wound. Like, bro, what are you fucking? We're, first off, we're fucking driving into a, I don't even know how big Tehran is, fucking five million person city. It's huge, yeah. Like, First off, this is it's. I'm, I don't know anything about tactics. All right, I'm not a fucking anything. That's crazy to do. Mm-hmm. It's like a suicide mission. To be completely frank with you, forget about the fact that it's like the first real ever mission for this special unit. It's insane. I mean, I'm not saying it couldn't happen, but like, dude, first off, you're not. It's not in the middle of the fucking desert. The objective is in the middle of a city, and then you shoot over to a fucking st- a stadium. Your helicopters, are they not, like, cr- that's insane to me. And so a couple of the big takeaways from Desert One. This led to the creation of, first off, JSOC. I realized we can't create an ad hoc, like, Pentagon planning cell. Um, there has to be a joint command that handles all this stuff. And that also brings in the other branches, Right. Um, so that we're all there under one roof. And you can get the goods from each branch, right? Like Navy SEALs, they know how to fucking Correct. swim really well. Right? Correct. And, and at the same time, of course, you have um, Dick Marcinko standing up SEAL Team 6. Um, that's and, and so that came out of the SEALs, obviously. And so uh, creating a maritime counterterrorism unit, they're br- brought into that. Um, this also, this incident leads also to the creation of 160th Special Operations Aviation Regiment. So all these cool helicopters we have today, the blacked out MH-47s, the Little Birds, yeah. uh, all of that, um, that was created out of Desert One. Makes sense. Um, because we needed, I mean, these helicopter pilots, they were conventional pilots. They had never flown conditions like this right. before. They just weren't up to it. Um I remember just a like a team house episode. Gary Cook, Greg Cook, he was a one sixtieth pilot. Greg Corker, Greg Corker, this guy, Coker, yeah, is a fucking gangster, dude. <laughs> like, just, and also you had the uh, general too, right? What was his that, Clay Hutmacher? I mean, the stuff that they train them to do, yeah, they're incredible. Is unreal, and yeah, and and for the, you know, I'll throw in my my two cents, my uh, personal note. I've flown with. Uh, 160th many times when I was in the military. And those pilots are amazing. They can do amazing things with those with those birds. Um, and you can just have total confidence yeah. in what they do. The guy, Coker, I remember when he was saying, like, uh, 
was it Coker was the general? I don't remember, but there was a great story because like the the team's getting off the little bird, and it's like these guys are fucking two hundred twenty pound jack dudes. So like the little birds rock, and it's like it's like you're making stew. You're trying to control the fucking <laughs> trying to control the. I helicopter. like the story Clay had about making the Rangers get out and push the uh, Blackhawk to like you got to put you got to get it to get it to push start it. And, you know the engine. Start. I don't remember that. Yeah, and so oh there, and so God. there's like a whole platoon of Rangers out there pushing oh it back, God. and then he hits the ignition and starts it. Okay, guys, good work. That's hilarious. Yo. <laughs> yeah, those guys are like they don't get. I mean, they do get love, but like they don't get. You know, like SEAL Team Six, everyone blows or whatever. But which great, you know, they're yes. gangsters too. But and the the point on that I would make, I had someone tell me this one time, the biggest development in special operations isn't, you know. The SF guys. It's not the operator. Like, yeah, these guys are badasses. But it doesn't matter how big a badass you are if you can't get to the target area. Right. So the biggest developments in special operations really are uh, fixed wing and rotary wing aircraft. First off, the fixed wing aircraft, modern American air power can get you basically anywhere in the world within 24 hours. Yeah. Um, and then once you get near where you're going... Um, we have, you know, all the helicopters loaded in the fuselage of those uh, aircraft, mm-hmm. and we have these amazing 160th pilots who yeah. can handle pretty much anything. Unreal what they do. Like, I remember the – what's the general's name again? Sorry, man. Uh, Clay Huttmacher. Clay Huttmacher. He's saying, like, that you know, you train flying fucking 30 feet above the sea level for, like, hours at a time. He's like, it's yeah. not easy at all. It's, like, brutal to do that. Yeah. Just, like, the type of endurance these guys have is yeah. fucking nuts. And so this also leads to the creation of some other capabilities. Like there was, um, oh, geez, what was the, the name of the, uh, there's an Intel organization set up and it was like field, field studies group or some, some weird thing like that. But it ended up um, being formalized as what became known as intelligence support activity or today. I mean, it's known by various classified uh, code names. Most people today know it as Task Force Orange or yeah, TFO. Yeah, I was going to say, yeah. And they're, they're still around. Um, so my my point with the Desert One operation is it led to the creation of all of these different capabilities. From a failure. Yes. Yeah. So that's Desert One. Um, now, I'll get into, in 1981, getting back to the POW and the MIA issue. And this is very controversial. I was kind of debating whether or not I should even bring it up. Um. 1981, I believe this was the second mission that Delta Force got, Operation Pocket Change. So this was a newly formed mission, uh, a, a mission for the newly formed JSOC to rescue American POWs that had ostensibly been left behind in Vietnam. Wow. Yes. The CIA was again leading the effort to recon a alleged POW camp. There were some radio intercepts. Uh, there were some um, like uh, image uh, image analysis that there were supposedly code letters marked out in the camp. Huh. Um, so in this this camp was in uh, Laos. So it was known as Fort Apache. That's what we called it. And the CIA sent a indigenous reconnaissance element there to uh, surveil the area. Um, they noted seeing someone they thought was Caucasian inside the camp. They reported back. um, At this time, Delta Force begins training up for this operation. Um, 
it was Colonel Bucky Burris that would have led this mission. Uh, he uh, would have the, the whole like process again. The planning process begins. They were looking at the roads uh, in northern Thailand where they would have launched from. They were looking at some you know helicopter landing zones, and uh, they were looking at uh, Tinian Island, which is uh, it's north of Guam. It's a small wow. island that they would have used for rehearsals. Oh shit! Um, do okay. the mission rehearsals. So they would have gone there, done their rehearsals, then gone to uh, North Thailand. And launched into Laos to do this POW rescue mission. I, the at the same time now, uh, now after the CIA had done their reconnaissance, the military wants to do their own reconnaissance. They want they want actual soldiers, Americans, to go in and look at this target area and get eyes on American POWs before we commit a sure. a, a, a rescue team. Now, what happened was this whole thing, the OPSEC around this mission got blown up because um, of a separate POW rescue effort that was, you know, basically mercenaries were going to go in. It was Bo Gritz and some other guys were going to go in and rescue mercenaries. And it hit like the Washington Post. It was like front page news. And so that blew the whole OPSEC around this mission. The whole thing got scrubbed. What happened to this? Whole, I mean, this is a this is an emotional subject, um, understandably for so many guys. Were there American POWs there? I don't know. Right. I, I don't know. I don't think anyone really does. Were there American POWs left behind after Vietnam? There, there's one guy who stayed there voluntarily. He was a he was a douchebag and still is. Why did he stay there voluntarily? He was like a he turned he turned to the other side. Okay. He, he was like okay. a trustee for the North Vietnamese. Okay. Um, so he stayed there voluntarily. We, we That's different. We didn't. Yeah, we didn't leave him behind. He was he was a scumbag who decided to stay there. Uh, but were there POWs left behind in Vietnam? I don't know. I don't know if we'll ever t- be able to answer that question. Um, and there's several thick books written about this subject. Um, and it's highly. Uh, debated. I'm assuming it's definitely debated, um, and yeah, there's a couple books out there that you can go and read on this subject about POWs potentially left behind in, in Vietnam. Um, I don't know the answer to it. Sure. Yeah. I, I mean, I think it's how did they distinguish between MIA and POW? Well, there there were you know they would be listed as MIAs. Okay. Um, but if we got wind that they were still alive, got it. They okay. Would be POWs. So they never even sent like a fucking couple guys to see if they can get eyes on, even just to get info. From my, from what I've read and what I've researched, it never got that far. So I would think like send a couple guys in there. Just to I'm check not saying it out. don't fucking raid it. Yeah, see yeah. if it's legit or not. Yeah, I. Yeah, it sounds like the whole thing got kanked after this. Um, you know, and I. Uh, you know, of course, Colonel Burris would be the person to talk to about this. Unfortunately, he doesn't care for me very much. Oh, what'd you do? I wrote, well, oddly enough, I wrote a positive review of his novel. He wrote a novel in the 90s, and I wrote a review about how great it was, and um, he, he blew up on me. Because you said it was a good novel? Well, because I, because I kind of decoded it, and I understood he was writing about real things. Oh, okay. Including bits of what we're talking about here. Um you know that that there were real operations 
um, right. and real tidbits of things that were written into that novel. And I kind of wrote like, oh yeah, it's this and that and this and that. And he didn't, he didn't Got care. It. He didn't Got care it. for that. Okay. Um, yeah. So, you know, yeah. Colonel Burris is not my biggest fan. Yeah. You pissing um, off brass is shocking but, to me, bro. But I, I will say this, despite all of that, I have a great, great admiration for Colonel Burris and the service he's done for our country, his service in Vietnam with Mike Force. He wrote a, uh, a memoir about his time in Mike Force in Vietnam. Highly, highly recommended. It's one of the best memoirs I've read from the war. And I've read a lot of them. Yeah, it's sure. Very, yeah. Very uh, highly recommended. So fast forward a few years here, 1983, Operation Urgent Fury, the island of Grenada. You know where that is? Europe? Just outside of, the, like, in the Mediterranean, right? That's by the here? Gibraltar. Oh, oh sorry. No, you're, this is, Grenada is down in the Caribbean. Mm-hmm. Um, so the problem with Grenada is they were flirting with commies right in our backyard. And that's no bueno. That never goes well. No. It never works except. out. Never works out. Um, they're inviting Cubans there. Like, this isn't cool, dude. Like, come on. And so they end up holding um, American medical students hostage down there, too. We uh, decide we're going to invade this little island. And Why not, right? A little, little fucking gonna show give them, it a go. We're going to show them what's up. We're going to give it the old college try. I, you know what's funny? Because I was reading, like, when I was a kid. So like, we're close in age. So this is, like, mid-90s, I want to say. I was, like, 11, 12. And I start reading about SEAL Team 6 and Navy SEALs and Green Berets and all that shit. And Grenada was, like, literally, like, the only shit, like, yeah. was out there. Yeah, yeah. Really, besides, like, Desert Storm. But Desert Storm 1, they didn't really say much about it, I guess. Like, they, there was time here to, like, get accounts out. People Oh, we'll, we'll get into it. There wasn't that much special ops happening during Desert Storm. Uh, yeah, right. Yeah, we'll, exactly. We'll, we'll, we'll get into that. We'll get but into it's so that. interesting how Grenada is, like... And Panama are the two that I remember reading about first. And there's like one or two iconic pictures from Grenada that, that were published over and over yeah. again. So in Grenada, you have um, Rangers jump in. Uh, Ranger Battalion jumps in. Uh, SEAL Team 6 guys. Fast. They really do lead the way, huh? Yeah, they're all over the place. 82nd um, was also there. Uh, SEAL Team 6, uh, Fast Ropes in. Delta Force went to go raid a prison, and they actually got shot out of a prison. Like, it was really bad. Like, they never even landed. Their helicopters got shot up so bad. Um, so we in, we did successfully invade the island. Um, but honestly, it was kind of dicey. I mean, it doesn't, um, yeah. It there, were, there, there were a bunch of SEALs who drowned off the coast Oof. during infiltration. Yeah, it was it was a little dicey. Um but what comes out of uh, out of Grenada was the Goldwater Nichols Act, um, specifically the Nun Cone Amendment, which specified the creation of SOCOM. So we talked about JSOC before. That's going to kind of coalesce around or co-locate uh, all of these counterterrorism. Uh, you know, these days tier one right. elements, yeah. if you will, um, under one command. Now we're realizing it's kind of like go big or go home. We need to have all special operations kind of under one roof um, to coordinate things. And so that specified the creation of SOCOM. Uh, Again, we're going to bounce a few years later, 1989. Panama in 1989. uh, This is kind of where people often say America got over its Vietnam syndrome, uh, that we kind of put the – our 
our defeat or our, our, our sense of shame. Kind of got over Vietnam, the hangover. Got over it and launched a massive air mobility operation down into Panama to unseat Noriega. There were, uh, there's a lot that goes into that and, and the planning. It's kind of amazing, actually, how in-depth it was. Uh, from a special operations perspective, there are a couple of things I would like to highlight. One of them is lesser known. It's There's the smallest bit of mention in one book. But I was able to have a drink one time with somebody who served in the aforementioned intelligence support activity, or TFO. Uh-huh. And he was telling me about how when the invasion of Panama happened in the run-up to it, his unit was doing surveillance on like a half dozen different residences where Noriega was known to Noriega was known to frequent. Uh, the idea being that they were going to just like go in there and snatch him up right before H hour, right before D day. Uh, what ended up happening was that uh, Noriega was on the road. He was driving from Cologne to uh, Tucumán when D day and H hour happened. So it's not like. Like, we're talking about, like, airplanes in the air. This is, like, a massive military undertaking. You can't just, like, oh, hold on a Wait, few guys, hours, yeah. guys, until Noriega gets to his villa. Like, so that that portion kind of got, um, I don't want to say it got screwed up. They were doing the best they could, but it didn't work out as optimally as they would have Listen, hoped. that's another thing now. You put it on the list. Like, oh, fuck, what if the target's not fucking there? Right, right. What do, do we do? Do you delay? Do you turn off this entire invasion for that? And so, and yo, you got to assume, right? Like we think of it like special ops now is like you guys were doing raids fucking every night. You know, it's like fucking right quick serve. This was like the amount of planning and prep that went into this, and everyone's puckered up fucking like trying not to lose their fucking jobs. Yeah, like there's major pressure here mm-hmm. to get it right. Of course. And at the uh, as this happens now, that now the uh, invasion is kicking off. You had uh, Delta Force and Navy SEALs are doing strikes to prevent, well, well, obviously to find Noriega, ideally, but also to prevent him from fleeing the country. So there were Navy SEALs who, uh, combat divers, who swam up under a vessel that he was known to use, and they attached explosives. Holy shit. On the bow and the stern, went in their subsurface, attached all the explosives. Like, this is frogman shit. Yeah, legit, yeah. And then... uh, as they were swimming away, Noriega's boys, the uh, PDF, the Panamanian Defense Forces, they're throwing hand grenades into the water, like searching for them. Holy yeah. fuck! And uh, the the seals um, managed to get away, swim under the dock, and I think it took them like two and a half or three hours to swim to meet their exfiltration point, where the uh, a boat, a navy uh, ship, picked them up. Um, so they they blew that vessel. That was done. Um, meanwhile, SEALs raided a airfield, um, came up in boats, raided this airfield, um, where Noriega's Learjet was, um, or was it a Lear or it was definitely a plane that he was known to Mm -hmm. use. And I know the SEAL officer who led that operation. Um, he's a, he's a great person. I don't think I've tried. I would really like him to tell his story. Um, because he's he's a terrific guy. He's a guy who has values, and he lost a bunch of seals on that operation. They got hit really hard out on out on the tarmac, and killed. One of his guys woke up in the body bag. I mean, it was bad bad stuff. Um, what do you mean? Is one of his guys woke up in a body? They, bag? they thought he was deceased. 
Yeah. What the fuck? That's insane, bro. Yeah. Um, and they, they they successfully took the airfield. They disabled the aircraft. Um, and then eventually Rangers came in and relieved them. Um, but they lost a bunch of SEALs on that operation. Uh, Rangers jumped into Rio Hato uh, and um, another airfield. Interestingly, all three Ranger battalions jumped into Panama. Really? Yeah. Yep. So that happened. Delta Force did a raid on a prison to free Kurt Muse, uh, who was allegedly transmitting pro-American propaganda for the CIA. (laughs) Uh, I've talked to Dale Comstock, who was the master breacher on that operation. He had some interesting stories about how they put the charge on the door and they didn't realize at the time they used, they would use that black electrical tape. Yeah. And because of the amount of humidity down in Panama, oh, shit. it gets in there and it loosens up the tape yeah. and the charge fell off the door. Oh my God. So like he had to, like, and there's like a whole troop of Delta operators yeah. stacked up on the roof. They've been infiltrated by a helicopter, by little birds. They're all standing there on the door, like ready to rock and roll. And he has to run up there and, like, reattach the charge. Oh, my God. Gets down there. He, apparently, he said he used P for plenty because there's a heavy jail door. And he's like, oh, there's no bad guys on the other side or no no good guys on the other side of this particular door. So we're not door. really sweating that. Yeah, so boom, blows it. Um, and the, the operators flow in. They assault downwards to the prison cell, um, get it open. Uh, put a helmet and body armor on Kurt Muse, get him back up to the roof. The helicopter gets shot down, has to make an emergency landing, comes down in the street. Um, But they successfully um, get him out of there. That was the first successful hostage rescue mission that the U.S. military ever did. That's awesome. Yeah. That's a big one. Yeah, they pulled it off. Um, Meanwhile, Delta and SEAL Team 6 are raiding these different targets. Um sort of a predecessor to what we ended up doing in Iraq and Afghanistan. They're manhunting, right? They're looking for this guy, a high-value target. They're hitting all these different places. I was told they found his pornography collection. Take that for what it's worth. Uh, (laughs) One SEAL Team 6 operator told me about hitting one of his houses and and, uh, popping open one of Noriega's beers afterwards. He almost have to. Uh, Noriega ended up fleeing to the uh, Vatican embassy, and they got him to surrender himself eventually. Um, One story I'd like to kind of um, cap this off with about the uh, Rangers jumping into Panama. This is a story that has kind of entered into Ranger lore, and I probably wouldn't even be repeating this had I not once talked to the jump master on this particular jump. So the story goes that the Rangers uh, are in the aircraft, are about to exit, the combat jump. So, you know, they get all the orders, like stand up, and then the next order is hook up. You're hooking up your static line parachute to the cable. Uh, right around that time, they had a new guy in the, in the platoon or in the company, um, and he jumps down on the ground and he starts screaming, I quit, I quit, I quit. He's jumped before, right? As as they're about to do a combat jump. They're like a minute away from jumping. So he's jumped in training. Yeah, for sure. See, like, I'd be the guy who quits and quits at training. I'm I'm scared of heights, dude. I'm out of here. I quit, I quit, I quit. The Rangers, the rest of them, hook up their static lines. And as they're walking past this guy, they're kicking him, they're stomping him, they're spitting on him. I get they're it. They're cursing this guy out, you motherfucking quitter. 
I mean, on a combat jump. And they dude. all go out the door, execute this combat jump at like 500 feet. Probably like a reserve parachute's probably useless at that point. Right. But no, no one died, thank God. They, they all hit the ground, execute their operation the way they were trained. So, time goes by. Rangers get back to garrison. And as it turns out, that guy who fell down and screamed, I quit, I quit, I quit, was actually screaming, I'm hit, I'm hit, I'm hit. Oh, my God. Because some anti-aircraft fire came up through the skin of the C-130 and clipped him. That took a turn. And <laughs> so they're standing out there in formation, and now all these proud airborne rangers are wearing their parachute wings with a mustard stain. When you have a combat jump, you, there's a little gold star okay. on your, on your uh, parachute wings. So they're all standing there, including this guy who never exited the aircraft. Oh, he, so everyone's he's, like he's salty? There on, he's there on crutches oh, okay. because he'd been hit, but he has his combat star on, on his parachute wings. And the first sergeant, who I was told is a, a, a like five foot tall Asian American, like calls him up to the front of the formation. It's like, did you exit high performance aircraft in combat jump? And this is guy who's an E five is like, uh, he's like, uh, no first sergeant, no I didn't. And he says exactly, and he pulls out his knife and just cuts that shit right off his uniform right there in front uh, of everyone. That's fucked up, kind of. I guess I don't know. He got hit though. It wasn't like he quit. Quit. He didn't go out the door. He didn't combat you're right. jump. There's no technically problem. right. You're right. He was just on the plane. But that that story, I think it's uh, it's a little amusing in retrospect. But it also encapsulates just like how highly motivated, how hard charging Ranger Battalion guys are. Um, and I'm biased, of course. Right. I, I I served there at one point. Um, not that I did anything that really matters, but I have an affinity for those guys. And um, as you can see, I started off this whole thing talking about Rangers and the Revolutionary War. Yeah, no, we, I got it. As far as I'm concerned, Rangers are basically the, uh, the moral center of the United States military, if not our country as a whole. Listen, man, I don't think Rangers get enough uh, credit. And it's not because you're sitting here you were a Ranger. Because they do a fuck ton of yeah, shit. Yeah. Like, they do almost everything. And a lot of it flies under the radar. Yeah. Like, just a lot of them like it that way. So, a few years later, uh, we get into 1990, 1991. Uh, we're getting into Operation Desert Storm. Now, there were not a whole lot of special ops missions going on in Desert Storm. Uh, particularly, the Rangers really got sidelined. Uh, it, it all had to do with Schwarzkopf. He did not like special ops. He just wanted fucking half a million guys to go he up didn't, with tanks. He and... didn't want us hogging their glory, I guess. Um, so he sidelined special forces and Delta and all of them as best he could. Um, there were some places that, you know, I guess they slipped through the cracks. The Rangers took down a uh, an antenna. Um, that was an operation they ran. Uh, special forces, um, they did have one operation or not an operation per se that they had, but one function they played in the war that was very successful was they had a, a liaison mission. So, you know, HW Bush's big thing was he, he put together a coalition force to, to, to attack Saddam within all of those different Arab armies that were attacking. There were embedded special forces advisors, U.S. Okay. special forces advisors. Um, there's a there's an acronym for it, like FETs or something. I can't remember off the top of my head, but it was a liaison advisory gig that um, American Green Berets did, working with our, our our partner forces, and that was very successful. There were some recon operations that SF did, 
And then there was, of course, uh, Delta Force and the SAS were hunting Scud missile launchers out in the desert. And I mean, that was a big fucking to do. That was like one of the uh, yes, the big uh, you know talking points as far as like how dangerous Saddam is and shit. Like with Scuds hitting Israel, yeah, he with was, chemical weapons, he was firing Scuds into Israel, threatening to draw Israel into the conflict, which would have been a huge, huge shit show. So they're out there hunting Scuds again. This is controversial. The Delta teams and the SAS. Probably, almost certainly, and I, I'm just going to say it, they didn't destroy a single Scud. I, and that's controversial. Why? Because the story is contra- It's controversial because some operators genuinely believed they did. You know, they destroyed decoys, they, destro- they destroyed um, anti-aircraft weapons, and they thought they were Scuds. Okay. Um, and some were decorated for it. Uh, I had dinner with the commander of the SAS from during this time frame. Uh, he's a retired brigadier now. And we discussed this topic, and I asked him straight up, uh, you know, how many scuds did the SAS destroy? And he gave me, to his credit, his straight up answer. He's like, I don't think we destroyed any. I mean, that's bull. I mean, that's crazy. A guy finishing up as a brigadier. Yeah, I mean, who, who would say that? Most people are fucking career he, he, guys. He was real, and, yeah. and he was he and he was also like, you know, that wasn't entirely the point either. And I was like, because it denied the enemy. Uh, you know, free, freedom of mobility, freedom of movement in that area. And he's like, yeah, that's part of it. Because you, if they know there are these soft teams, SAS teams running around there, now they have to factor that into right. their decision-making process. Um, you know, the Delta guys um, also, you know, I'm not trying to throw shade on anybody here. I mean, I think it's very brave, and I, I know some of those dudes. Um, but I don't think they destroyed any scuds. Uh, so... Yeah, I don't think, like, even that they didn't, like, they still fucking did the missions. They fucking, you know, did yeah, what they had they, to do. Yeah, they went out there behind enemy lines. Right, yeah. They, they did their job. Um, So that was the that was the Gulf War, the long and short of it, for special operations. Mm-hmm. Now we move into the 1990s uh, and, and, you know, that whole period of time where, as far as some people are concerned, nothing was happening. Uh, but there are some things. Yeah. There's some things that did happen. Some that have kind of entered into legend. Um, some that have kind of reached like epic proportions, um, almost to the point of ridiculous and ridiculousness in a few instances. Um, but still interesting things. And there were guys out there, you know, doing their job and serving. And uh, I mean, we can start just about anywhere. I mean, maybe we want to start with Colombia and Operation Heavy Shadow when we were targeting Pablo Escobar. This guy Pablo Escobar. What a dunce. I'm sorry, man. Like, he had the world by the balls. He made deals with Colombia where, like, he could basically get off. And he, he do whatever he wanted. And he couldn't fucking do that. Like, he couldn't even handle it. It's ego, man. I know. You know, bringing down a commercial jetliner. Uh, Insane. That is, uh, that's a tipping point. That's a tipping point. I mean, we would have gone after him regardless, I think, because of the narcotics. Um, but not as intensely. Like right. we, now you're getting into international terrorism. We're talking about a whole other category. Right. Uh, and so Delta Force put together a small team of guys um, and was sent down there to start doing liaison ops with the Colombians and start fi- trying to figure out where Escobar was uh, so that he could be apprehended. And the legend 
um, that goes on, persists to this day, is that the Delta guys uh, were, the Delta operators were the ones who actually killed him, that they assassinated him. That is not true. Um, Jerry Boykin affirms that in his book, Never Surrender, and, and I believe him. Um, it, it was not it was not our guys. It was the Colombians that went and killed him. However, here is the interesting point. Prior to that incident, to, to that operation where he was killed up on the rooftop, there was about half a dozen operations with Americans that were launched oh, wow. to go and kill Escobar. So it could have happened. And to my knowledge, this has never been reported anywhere, but we did a whole series of operations where, like, logistics was moving, helicopters were moving, everything was going into place. Yeah. And um, I was told that the same issue we ran into in Somalia, that we were telegraphing our moves, that we did that down in Colombia, huh, okay. and that he got wind of what was going on, and it ended up canking those operations. Um, then there's also, this is apropos to nothing perhaps, but the uh, mercenaries yeah. that got hired to go and kill Escobar in 1989. And we, we interviewed uh, just recently Peter McAleese about that, who's former SAS. But so it wasn't until 1993 that, that Pablo gets popped. Um, and that ends that episode in history. But right around the same time, we are getting into Somalia Operation Gothic Serpent. Um, when we were going after Adid and a bunch of other high-value targets. Uh, I don't know what can really be said there that hasn't been written. Yeah, about Black Hawk Down. About. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it's one of the famous, most famous special operations missions or battles, whatever you want to call it. You know, I feel like everyone knows about it. Right, right, and rightly so. I mean, it was crazy what those guys did and what they what they accomplished. Um you know, I know one guy uh, who was a ranger uh, on that task force, and he went on to serve through the war on terror, oh, stayed wow. in the military, and he, he told me, he said, I have never in my life experienced that volume of fire that we did in Somalia. Really? And, Holy shit. And, and, and he, he was like, we were out there flapping because they didn't have any real fire support other than those little birds coming in and doing gun runs. Like, there was no fast movers. There was no AC-130. Yeah. Like, they were severely limited. That's fucking crazy. Yeah. And, like, now, most of the time on ops, you guys have fire support. Like, you guys have... It's to the point now where it's almost arguably too risk-adverse, where we won't go without air superiority. Yeah. Um, that we won't launch an op without real-time overhead ISR drone feeds going all the way back to, you know, McDill or wherever. Yeah. Um, so it's to the point that we won't do the op if we don't have all of that. I mean, I get it, man. You don't want to get people killed. Yeah. You don't want to leave people out there hanging. Um, you want to have, um, something on call, a quick reaction. That's a very course. good point, bro. I didn't even think of that. Right. Mm -hmm. Like no fucking predators, up the, you know, dropping health fires or whatever. The litter birds, sure. Great. Awesome. Right. But it's not the same as like an F-15 or whatever, like, or an AC-130 that just fucking kills everything in sight yeah Oof. so then we're also getting into bosnia and hunting for war criminals or they were called piffwicks at the time um and so this was like something for delta to go and do for jsoc to do um so they were all stoked about getting to go do some ops finally um 
you know, we, we interviewed George Hand on the team house before, who is a Delta operator doing work there, doing actual operational stuff there. Uh, he'd be, you know, wearing civilian clothes, driving around, doing reconnaissance. And uh, he was talking about how there is a element within uh, Delta, which is commonly referred to as the funny platoon, but they are females, female soldiers who serve as a, like Katie McBriar did in Blue Light, serving in a intelligence gathering capacity. And as George was telling us, it was also to help break up the pattern, the outline of like some muscle bound 30 something year old dudes. Yeah. Um, that every time it's like these two like guys who are like super in shape, probably white, right. certainly male. Right. Uh, so by having just happen to be in this fucking war torn country. And if, and if we open our, if they open their mouths, they have an American accent. Yeah. So at least in this way, they can be husband and right. wife or something yeah, like that. Yeah, cover it makes sense. They could sense. be their girlfriend, uh, you know, whoever. Um, so George was around doing recce work like that. Uh, RRD, which we haven't talked about here, um, the Ranger or the Regimental Reconnaissance Detachment, which has also been around since about 1983 to do reconnaissance for the Ranger Regiment, um, doing recon on airfields, because one of their primary responsibilities for the Ranger Regiment is airfield seizures. Um, but RRD would also get more specialized right. tasks as time went on. And um, they did some work with Delta uh, in Bosnia. And the operators were kind of uh, holed up in these like clamshell bunkers. Um, they were hangars, really. And they were just trapped, essentially trapped in there, <laughs> just waiting for a mission. And they did go and get to ball up some war criminals right. and, you know, who were, you know, sent to The Hague. Um, at the same time, uh, some of the other things we have going on is um, you had Delta operators who were embedded in the UN's Weapons of Mass Destruction program, their, their weapons inspector program. So you had guys who were undercover um, in this UN program to go and facilitate these weapons inspections. It's interesting. Why is it Delta, like not a CIA thing? Um, because Delta has specialized tasks um, and skills. Like when it comes to the tactical stuff, those guys are going to be better at it than the CIA. Yeah, so I guess like they need to know the ins and outs of like, you know, the more specific nuanced info. So I'll give you a few examples of things that a soldier could do that the CIA couldn't do necessarily. The CIA can do some of these things, but arguably not as well. Uh, you would have guy, um, Delta operators who were very good at what we, what we now call sensitive site exploitation or SSE. So they uh, a, a very fast, very methodical way of searching rooms and searching entire buildings, which was critical for doing weapons inspections. Because they're going to go and hit like the Iraqi Ministry of Defense, the Iraqi, you know, Department of the Post Office, yeah, or whatever yeah. it is, looking for signs and traces of WMDs. So you need to have a very quick, very thorough, methodical way of searching. And the JSOC guys had developed that. Um, also, you need some guys who are good with lock picks. As you come across doors that are locked, there were operators who. And quick, they could pop a lock. In yeah, because I could seconds. see a fucking inspection. They're trying to move your ass along quick. Yes. And, uh, you know, on paper, the Iraqis are like, hey, come, come look at anything. It's an open. We're an open book. But in reality, when you get there, they're trying to stymie you and yeah. slow you down as much Understandable, as possible. Sure. That's what I used to do when I had restaurants with the health inspector. <laughs> I tried to <just> fucking <laughs> distract as, as much as I could. 
And then also having uh, soldiers there, having operators there, they are, of course, equipped to do reconnaissance in case they ever have to go and hit these facilities at some time in the future. No, it makes sense. And another thing that not too many people are aware of is that they had to contend with what happens if Saddam takes the U.N. weapons inspectors hostage, including the Americans. So there were Delta elements close by. Right. And the American weapons inspectors had a technical means that they could alert them that they were under duress. Oh, okay. So this element could be launched to come and rescue. It does make more sense tactically for sure. And you don't want to add like another level, I guess, like another. Why make it even more, why make it even more complicated by a CIA doing this, like a CIA element doing this rather than Delta doing it where. The CIA has paramilitary elements. And yeah, but they're not going into hostage rescue. No, or blow that, up no, that, that yeah. they would not get called on. Yeah. No. no, so it makes sense. But they, they do have guys who are, they, they, there was a cell, you can read about this open source. Um, they had a, a, a group of burglars that would, around the same, t- same time frame, I guess, uh, who would go and break into embassies. Oh, wow. And steal nuclear codes out of safes. Holy shit. Yeah. And so these guys were like B&E specialists. Yeah. Um, Holy shit. But more often than not, what the agency does is they have, um, per- they have professional locksmiths who they'll have get a top secret clearance. Right. And bring them in for specialized jobs. Yeah. Because otherwise, what's a locksmith at the CIA doing 24-7? Like, yeah, bro. Practicing so, breaking, lo- like locking, like, you know, yeah, going, not, getting not, into locks. Probably not so much. So that's kind of how that shook out. Um, in the 1990s, 19, uh, there was also a lot of planning operations that never got off the ground. Uh, of course, there was Haiti almost happened, but not really. Uh, one operation that was off and on for a long time was the Tarhuna chemical weapons factory that Gaddafi had. Uh, old Colonel Gaddafi had an underground chemical weapons lab out in the middle of the desert. And uh, there's a JSOC planning cell looking at that. And the plan was actually to come up over the beach in hovercraft, Marine Corps hovercraft, get as far, penetrate as far into the desert as they could. Then they would drop ramp, drive like military vehicles off of the uh, off of the hovercraft, drive further into the desert, set up their security perimeter, and they would be dragging with them on a trailer or whatever a industrial drill like you use for mining. Yeah, like a boring kind of right. And they'd set that up and they'd start drilling straight down into the desert into this underground weapons lab. And once they drilled out a hole. They would pull up, I guess, like a cement mixer, and they would pour a explosive slurry, like a liquid, down into oh my god the underground facility. And I don't know if somebody would like light a match and right, like how do you set hole. it up? Yeah, I'm sure there was a real initiation sure. system. Yeah, um, and then blow it up. Um, but the through negotiations, uh, Gaddafi agreed to shut down the chemical weapons plant on his own. That's a nuts fucking... That's just a hovercraft alone is fucking nuts. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, all this stuff that I... Or not all of this stuff, but there are some... I probably should have had a, a, a list of references. There's a book called Crippled Eagle by Rod Lenahan, which is about the birth of uh, counterterrorism and, um, and Desert One. Very, very good book. He also wrote a book called Confrontation Zone about Panama. Very good. 
Sean Naylor wrote a book, a history book about JSOC called Relentless Strike, which is worth reading. And uh, to to pat myself on the back, uh, at my website, Jack Murphy RGR, or I'm sorry, it's jackmurphywrites.com is my website. And if you go there, you can download for free a PDF of an article I wrote all about blue light. Okay. And it talks about the creation of blue light and Delta Force and the interplay between the two. Yeah. In blue light, did they, they like a bunch of blue light guys go over to Delta at some point? Um, about four of them four. ended up over there. One of them, um, some of the, uh, I mean, I, I don't say this to, I hate to even like bring this up, but one of them was uh, Marshall Brown, who turned out to be a serial rapist. And he's still in prison. I, I wrote to him in prison a couple of times and he never replied. Really? Marshall was the, the, the Delta squadron he was in was going all around the country doing training. Uh-huh. And during that time, Marshall was breaking into women's houses. Oh, Jesus them. Christ. And it eventually came out. Um, there is a Delta operator I spoke to had while he was away had someone wearing a ski mask try to break into his house and rape his daughter so this yeah, yeah. And oh my he god be- he believes it was marshall brown who knew that the father that the teammate was on tdy and so that he waited until his fellow operator was on tdy to go and try to rape his daughter can't prove that but a lot of the rapes were proved um i talked to his squadron commander who was on TDY with them going training all around the country. So a tough guy. And the only time I ever heard fear in this dude's voice was when he talked about Marshall Brown and God knows what this guy did while we were right. all over the country. Right. Yeah. Oof. That's fucked. Yeah. That's one of the black marks on, on our, our history. Um, one of the takeaways from that, I think is my understanding was that when he went through assessment and selection, the unit psychologist gave him the thumbs oh, up really? and said no. And that Charlie Beckwith overrode the psychologist and said, no, we want this guy. Why? Is it is it because it's so hard, like the attrition rate so fucking high? It may have been because of his experience or it could, or just a um, good old boy network. So I guess the takeaway from that is let the selection process do its job. Yeah, it's there for a reason, yeah. right? Yeah. That is fucking nuts. That's a wild sidebar. It, it is a wild sidebar. Um. Also, during this time frame, the 1990s, um, Delta Force and J- JSOC in, in general, they were training for the uh, hardened target de- or the, the hardened deeply buried target or deep underground mission where they were tar- they were tasked. They've always been tasked to interdict weapons of mass destruction. And from their inception, they would do training exercises to uh, go and interdict uh, INDs, improvised nuclear devices. Huh. And that was a big fear that maybe some terrorists right. would create an improvised nuclear device. Pretty hard to do, actually. Sure. Um, and so they would train for that. They would train to go and interdict other WMDs. Um, and the mission would be to to interdict them and destroy them. To, it's, and essentially, we're talking about sabotage operations. Yeah. That operation, that that tasking evolved in the 1990s that they didn't just want them to destroy it. They wanted them to take it out with them. So now (laughs) these guys are training to raid enemy bunker systems and to steal a nuclear warhead 
Come on, that sounds impossible. And bring it out with them. They have been through full mission rehearsals and right. training for this. And out at the Nevada test site, they deep below underground, they set off explosive charges practicing to blow open like bank vault type doors and things like, like I that. Like I get destroying the facility. That's obviously doable. But to get in, get out and take the fucking weapon or weapons right. and get out. Like, I get maybe, like, a one-off in North Korea, because I'm sure that was probably, like, the big fucking... Everyone was stressing about North Korea. You know, because they are going to have, like, two to four weapons right. at that point. But to get out with it is crazy, dude. And I, I asked, why was this requirement changed that now they want you to get out with it? And I never really got a satisfactory answer. The only thing I can think of is there are two labs in the United States where they could potentially dismantle the bomb and determine where the radioactive, the nuclear material So see where they got it from. Correct. Okay. I understand why that is important intelligence, but, I mean, everyone would die <laughs> coming out. you got to assume these places are fucking super fucking secure. I mean, with enough resources, maybe anything is possible, but... I, I agree that it sounds a lot like a suicide mission unless it takes place under very specific circumstances. Sure. Okay, yeah. Um, and then, of course, 9-11 happens and everything changes. I feel like, yeah, the 90s were kind of sleepy to be glib about it. If you were in JSOC, I think they kept you pretty busy. Sure. Um, in Ranger Battalion and in Special Forces to a large extent, SF at least deployed on training missions mm -hmm. all over the place. But from that perspective, from a combat perspective, pretty sleepy, yeah. Yeah, I feel like 9-11, these last 20 years have legitimately supercharged special operations. Yes, absolutely. It put a huge emphasis on special operations. Um, you know, Afghanistan was called from the beginning the Special Operations Olympics. It's like everyone gets to come out and play and use all these capabilities, all these toys we have. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, now it's on. The, the war that everyone had been waiting for is on. Right. And we invaded Afghanistan, obviously. We invaded Iraq. And special ops now gets involved in a new type of warfare, sort of industrial strength counterterrorism, that I was a witness of some of it, where we're hitting two or three targets in a single night. Um, there's a lot we can talk about in the global war on terror. This is literally its own fucking... Yeah, for sure it is. Um we can talk about any aspect you want of it, or you know, I can also jump into like a few specific things. Hit a few specific things, yeah, because literally we can go another two hours on this. Yeah, yeah, a couple, um, a couple that are lesser known. Um, and there are many, but just one I can think of is Delta did a uh, freefall jump in Afghanistan, jumped from eighteen thousand feet, and uh, set up a hide site, and they were doing surveillance on a highway system. Wow. Um, watching to see where traffic was coming and going from. So there are some freefall jumps out there that have never been publicized um, that aren't in any of the literature. Another one that we could get into, so early war on terror, as you might recall, um, we were trying to set up a sort of platform for cooperation with the Russians. Um, There's going to be some intelligence sharing. CIA people I talked to said nothing came out of that. It was all bullshit. Um, but there were some efforts made, early efforts being made. And one thing that uh, I don't I don't know if it's ever been publicized before is that there were some operators that went and did a liaison job in Russia with the Russians. 
and they were in Chechnya and Dagestan looking to uh, track down and interdict fissile material. Wow. Yeah. That's a crazy story that, like, not many people – you told me about it, like, before – and even me, I was like, what the fuck? I've never heard of it. Yeah. It, it Well, interestingly, also, 10th Special Forces Group did a joint mission with Spetsnaz in Bosnia during the 1990s. Yeah, that's fucking wild. Where it was, they were part of, a, part of like a, a peacekeeping mission together. Yeah. And they were on the same fob. And almost by happenstance, like they found out where the leaders of, you know, a bandit gang were. And um, they just rolled out on gun trucks together, Spetsnaz and, no shit. and, Green, and Green Berets. That's interesting. And they went out there and did a joint op together. Uh, so that was in that was in the year 2000, I believe. Um, so now early into the war on terror, there were some... So whatever happened with that mission? I don't know. Nothing? It probably just went away. Yeah. As that intelligence sharing kind of dissipated and became clear nothing was going to happen. Right. That, that's my suspicion. That's insane. That like, first off, like, are, are there real credible threats... Like fissile material getting fucking bought and sold. Yes, there is. Yeah, uh, for sure. And it's mostly um, a lot of the assumptions we have about it is that it's terrorist organizations or that it's um, disaffected ex KGB guys or the Russian mafia. Um, it's really like farmers and stuff, like peasants, uh, poor people who are trying to make money. Yeah, and who have access to this shit, I guess. And grab whatever they can. Yeah. Well, I mean, I'm sure fucking. I mean, I hope it was a big concern in, like, the late 80s, early 90s when the Soviet Union broke apart. Yeah, jeez. To be able to try and at least get them under control a little bit. So, yeah, I mean, as as we said, the the war on terror we could go on and on about. Um, then there's everything that happened with ISIS. Um, there's a lot going on there. You want to talk about bin Laden real well, quick? Yeah, bin Laden. I mean, it's done to death, too. Yeah, it is done what to What do you think about Seymour Hersh's fucking... I think angle. with with Seymour Hirsch, it's very difficult, um, and I think that his article on it did as much harm as good because, geez, forgive me for saying this. I, I I think that sometimes all of his facts are correct, but he still somehow manages to get the story wrong. Um, that there's a little bit too much of a agenda imprinted onto the story overall. Uh-huh. And But I do think that a lot of the facts, and I don't believe everything that he wrote in that article. That's why I say I think he muddied the waters along the way. Um, but I also think the truth began to come out in that article. Right. Yeah, I mean, I read the – I only gave it credence because, you know, he's Seymour Hersh, right? He's like a legendary reporter. And it was just like too – like when it first happened, some of the info got a little muddled, right? And then they clarified the next day and then they clarified again. And then the fucking movie comes out, Zero Dark Thirty, which I've ha- I've gained a new fucking hatred for Mark Bull, that rat fuck, <laughs> because he's a rat. Um, and like just the straight up CIA propaganda that they fucking spewed out, which I, it's a win for us, right? It's a win for the United States, right? Mm-hmm. We got the guy that literally, for better or worse, changed our country forever, right? We got the rat. So it's a good thing. But again, like I don't want to be spoon fed fucking propaganda. No one does. And the CIA is lying about how all that went down, but they aren't lying for the right reasons. Yeah, I get it. The, you know, protect people, sure. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, there's very little about the whole narrative that 
coalesced around the Bin Laden raid that I put much stock in. Although from a special operations standpoint, look, no conspiracy theory BS here. SEAL Team 6 loaded up on some really high-speed ghost stealthed-out Blackhawks yeah. and flew into Abbottabad, landed, took out Bin Laden, uh, snatched up whatever documents he had, grabbed up his body, and hightailed it out of there. Um, and that happened. Yeah. So um, ever since then, I think U.S. special operations can be uh, almost written into the U.S. Constitution. Sure. <laughs> That's like one of the big things that comes out of this. Um, it, th- this is the predominance of U.S. special operations, the, the renewed importance that it has, and that it's not going anywhere. It's Now it's like so firmly embedded in the minds of Americans. There's no sh- We can get out of Afghanistan. We can get out of Iraq. We can get out of everywhere. Syria. It's not going anywhere. When I get on the subway system and I hear 12-year-old kids talking about this stuff, because they're playing video games. Yeah. They're playing Call of Duty. When I go through Irvington, New York... Our beloved Hudson River community, yeah. <laughs> one of the most yuppie town in Westchester, and I see like CrossFitters out there wearing cry precision plate carriers, like like they have assumed this whole operator aesthetic. Yeah, special operations is not going anywhere. Right, it's no. not going anywhere. No, um, this is the future, and there are there are a lot of hazards in that also, um, from a policy standpoint. Uh, that you have these people who are, you know, they're trial lawyers or whoever, they get elected into office, and all of a sudden they're being briefed on all of these capabilities, and they're being read on to all of these classified programs, and they can see it as a toy. They right. can see it as a plaything, yeah. and something that they can use to resolve all of their policy dilemmas very easily. You see these problems that we have going around in the world. We got, we got a Taliban problem. We use special ops. We got an ISIS problem. Yeah. We use special ops. It's special operations has itself to blame, too, for, for some of this. Because look at the way they behave. They're like, oh, you got a disinformation problem? We're going to be this dis- disinformation guys. We're going to handle disinformation, and, and we're going to, you know, we're, we're all over that. Uh, cyber warfare, we're all over that, too. I think like, it's just another want, thing. They like, want, they when wanna, you grow, yeah, like, as a business or as an institution... At some, you, it gets to a point where you just need to feed the beast now. It's its right. own living thing, right? And it's not. It's like how Eisenhower said about the military-industrial complex. This is like a cottage industry yes. of that. Yes, they've created a, a military within a military. Yeah. And the next step is they want to create a special operations branch. So that's its own branch of the military. And there's all kinds of shenanigans going on with. Um, with OSD Solik and how they want to like preposition that, and they want that. What's to that? Have, they they ostensibly write policy um, at the Pentagon for special ops. Um, they want to have a more direct line of access, um, an organization that already has a direct line of access. I mean, JSOC has a direct line of access to the White House. Right, like the guy who actually pulls the trick, you know, presses the button and gives the okay. That's to, they have legit the and, direct access, and, and it has to because. The decision to execute a time-sensitive hostage rescue or, or raid like the bin Laden raid, it's inherently a political decision, and, and the president has to make that decision. Sure. Yeah. So when you hear people talk, uh, a lot of people throw around the term like national command authority. It's actually national command authorities. It is the secretary of defense and the president 
um, the SecDef has some authorities that he can move forces around right. at his discretion. But to actually launch an operation across international borders, you're going to need the president. So, Soleimani. Yeah, Qasem Soleimani. This is getting into a whole new ball game here. This uh, this operation was, in my opinion, more important than the Bin Laden raid. Even though that had tremendous symbolic importance to the United States, this that who you know he's the scumbag who killed two thousand Americans. Yeah, 2, but ten years later Americans. and under house arrest, quasi how, house. How arrest. important was he right. to the movement? Uh, Baghdadi, I think he was more of a figurehead to ISIS. I don't think he was a. I don't think he was a real leader of ISIS. I don't think he was like, you know, like the Nazis with a little shuffleboard thing where he's moving the pieces yeah, yeah. around the map. I don't think Baghdadi was doing that either. Right. Um, again, an important symbolic win. Qasem Soleimani is something different, mm-hmm. very different. Yeah, it's very brazen. I gotta be honest. Like, I mean, it's a better. I'm mean, listen. Strategically, we're better off with him gone, right? Because he was like a pro's pro in terms yes. of like guerrilla. You know, he ran shit for Iran's Quds Force. Correct. Soleimani was a uniformed general in the IRGC, the Iranian Republican Guard, specifically the Quds Force. Uh, their version of special forces that handles proxy warfare, and it's active globally. They are all over the world. Not just regional in the Middle East. They do assassinations globally. Not in the United States that we know of, but I'm telling you, they whack people globally because they don't give a fuck. Right. They don't give a fuck. These guys run proxy forces in Yemen. They ran proxy forces all over Iraq, killed American soldiers, enabled terrorists in, in Iraq. They run proxy forces in Syria, in Lebanon. They are everywhere. And this gets into the whole geostrategic picture, but a lot of the stuff we do in Syria and, and in, in Iraq uh, these days, it's not really about Syria. It's about Iran. Yeah, We're there trying to break up Iran's monopoly on the region. And I mean, there's a reason why they have a monopoly on the region. Let's be honest. It's because of the Iraq war. Uh, partly, yes. But I mean, that's got to be a, that's a huge... They've been at this for a long time also, and they're very good at what they do. Since, it, the, since the Iraq war, is, has it grown? It's, it, yes, I, I think it has. Okay. Uh, as a, a friend of mine, an intel guy who studied Soleimani very carefully, he pointed out to me that Soleimani is very interesting in the sense that it was like he took the framework that we built for the OSS back in World War II, the the Office of Strategic Services. Like he took that concept of building commercial covers. The Iranians call them uh, bayans. Mm -hmm. Uh, Building up commercial covers and using them as a prop to wage global intelligence and paramilitary operations. Whereas America has kind of like seesawed and took this wishy-washy approach. Um, the Iranians are obviously they're not accountable to a Congress, to an electorate or any of that. Right. They can go and do what the fuck they want. And they have. So Soleimani has been a thorn in our side for quite a while, but we never targeted him for a variety of reasons. One of one of the big ones being we fear the retaliation and also that he is a general in the Iranian army. Yeah, he's not, it's not. Yeah, he's not a part of a. Well, OK, he was not. A terrorist like bin laden was some of the actions he participated in arguably were terrorism absolutely yeah and but he's not a cave dweller and under the trump administration we did designate the irgc as a foreign terrorist organization well yeah because we did that so we can kill this guy 
partly, yeah. Right, yeah. we got to cross it, our it, legal it allow, T's. It allows us to target the entire infrastructure in a yeah. variety of different ways um, legally that we wouldn't be been able to do before. So, and again, I think taking him off the board is probably, I hope, I mean, the blowback is probably going to be felt for like the next generation. But I think short term and like medium term, it's probably better, net positive. Short term, I think it's better. It definitely clips the wings yeah. of, of them and hampers their operations. Long term, there's a retaliation coming, and they don't they don't care if they have to wait 20 years. Yeah, and it wasn't just like they shot some rockets at a fucking base they, right after. They did. Uh, they shot some rockets at some bases in Afghanistan. They fired those ballistic missiles at us that didn't kill anyone. Mm-hmm. Um, that was their retaliation, at least to save some face. Yeah, the for the papers. Term. Right. It also swept their legs out from under them that they shot down that Ukrainian airliner accidentally. Right, yeah. Yep. And they kind of exposed themselves as a bunch of incompetent thugs, mm-hmm. which most of them, except for Soleimani, of course, were. Right. Um, so when Trump comes into office uh, and he brings on John Bolton, of course, all this stuff comes very much on the table. Like yeah, John Bolton, like what's his face, Pompeo, they want United States imperialism. Like they want, to take, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, and and they have a uh, an almost irrational obsession with Iran. Um, this country, Iran, is a problem for the United States. The Iranian government is a problem for the United States, I should say, but they have an obsession. With regime change in Iran, right. that's difficult to understand. Not not Trump. I'm Is it saying. evangelical-ish in nature? Uh, I think for some of them that plays a role. Not, not and I'm not saying Trump is one of those people, but no, Bolton, Bolton, and the neoconservative yeah. crowd yeah. it is. Um, for Trump, he came to see it as something he could use to to um, put a feather in his hat for re-election. Um, and also, he did. Trump did have his red line. Um, you will recall the Iranians shot down a drone yeah. of ours, and we were going to retaliate, do all kinds of airstrikes in Iran, and Trump called it off because his red line was not unless they kill Americans. Right, they which shot, I can respect, actually. They shot down the drone. That's not enough for us to go and kill 50 Iranians right. over. His red line was crossed uh, a little later when um, the Iranians uh, launched rockets as they, they rocket our bases all the time, but they, yeah, it's either, it's going to be their fucking, uh, militias like that they pay yes, for. Yeah. The Shia militias. And they rocketed, uh, one of our bases and killed an American contractor. So now the line has been crossed for president Trump and he's prepared to green light this thing. Uh, the talks begin with JSOC and the CIA, this agency somewhat involved. The CIA is very much involved in a project of trying to find this guy and listen in on him sure, and gather, you, yeah. gather intelligence on him. As far as the targeting and the killing, that was all JSOC. CIA was kind of... I'm not surprised by that, yeah. Yeah, so... CIA wants to keep fucking milking that goat. You know what I mean? Like, Well, it's it's interesting because they... Wanted to keep their hands clean of it, but then after the fact, they definitely want to act like, oh, yeah, that we were all about right. this. Sure, you I know? get that, too. After after you have a successful mission. Listen, you have a successful mission, you see what the news cycle's doing, and you're like, no, yeah, we were totally in on that. Yeah, yeah. You know what I mean? So, JSOC comes to the president, and, he, and the command offers them a series of different options. Um, we can take him out with a sniper. We can do a tactical team on the ground, do a vehicle interdiction, which those guys have gotten very good at over the years. 
Um, we can do a drone strike, or we can do a uh, controlled yield IED. So we can build an IED and blow them up on the side of the road, make it look like, no, oh, whatever. So the other options are kind of deniable. Like the IED specific, the I IED, mean, come on, guys. That's the way to go. Now, it, well, it's it's one of these things where it's like plausible deniability, right? The Iranians aren't dumb by any means. They're going to know sure. what happened, but they haven't been publicly shamed. And if you slap it's them, it's not an international incident like it was. Yeah, if you slap them in the face publicly, yeah. now they have to respond to that. Right. Um, if it's done covertly or, or with plausible deniability, now they have some wiggle room. They don't have to come and like blow up one of your federal buildings right. necessarily. Uh, so. The, like the sniper shot or a tactical team on the ground, you can deny it, but, you know, they'll figure it out. Now, that's a little tougher to deny than the IED. Yeah, yeah. Now, the one that really can't be denied at all is the drone strike. No, dude. No. And that's the one President Trump... Like Sunni militias shows. have fucking drone strikes? Have drones? That's that's the one that the Trump administration went for. They uh, They wanted something they could claim credit for. Now comes the whole project of trying to figure out where Soleimani is. It's the, that whole find, fix, finish, right? We got to find him and fix him in place so we can finish him. And that becomes a huge ordeal. The Russians are, or I'm sorry, not the Russians, the, the uh, Israelis are involved in that. NSA, of course, is involved. CIA is involved in some aspects of it. JSOC, obviously involved. Soleimani used very complex methods to uh, throw us off his trail. Yeah, he was like fucking Nicky Santoro in Casino, changing cars, doing the yep. whole fucking Jamal yep. thing. Yeah. He would change cell phones like hourly, every three hours, change cell phones. Uh, when he left a, uh airport, he would have like three airplanes take off at once, so yeah. you don't know which one he's on. Sometimes he would just um, purchase a commercial plane ticket, and so like his whole posse would get on the plane, and then sometimes he would get on, sometimes he wouldn't. So... And because he switched out cell phones... And he's operational. He's traveling throughout the region. He's traveling throughout the region to meet with his proxy commanders. That's crazy for Siri. a top guy to do. Yeah. He, he's directly controlling Yeah. Uh, we eventually compromised uh, his cell phones, even though with all the difficulties, because he's switching them out all the time, yeah. um, with the help of the Israelis... We had surveillance teams at different airports watching out for him because the, he's switching up the electronic signature so much. We also have to get eyes on right. him. Right, got to make sure it's him. Yeah, yeah. And one of the big fears, of course, is also what if it's him and we just clip him and like we miss? Like his he's going to like ignite ignite the Middle East on yeah. fire afterwards. So we got to be sure, right? And this was probably the most complex, sophisticated operation that JSOC has ever run. They uh, track him to Damascus. He's getting on a flight to uh, Baghdad International. He gets there late. Uh, it's also important to point out that this was part of an entire decapitation strike, that we had other strikes planned for Syria and Yemen. We are going to try to take out Quds Force, in a sense, like cut the head off the snake, set them back years. Yeah. Only the Soleimani part of that operation really got executed. Why? Um, Just too, too complicated? It was complicated, and I, we missed the guy in Yemen. And then the ones in Syria got canceled. And I don't know exactly why they get canceled. I suspect it had something to do with him getting on that airplane late, and the timing okay. was thrown off. But I'm not 100% sure to be clear with that. 
Um, Soleimani arrives in Baghdad that night. We had uh, Kurdish surrogate forces who were at the airport disguised as baggage handlers. They were able to PID, get positively identify Soleimani. Uh, he gets off the aircraft, gets onto a couple vehicles with the leader, one of the Shia militia leaders, uh, the PMU leaders in Iraq. They peel off the um, access road onto the other road that goes around the airfield. We had shut down that side of the airfield for a snap training exercise with the Iraqis. At least that's the excuse we gave to limit collateral damage. Um, As Soleimani drives out, we had Delta teams situated in uh, vehicles. They were like disguised as like maintenance workers and stuff like that, Um, kind of triangulating on Soleimani as he's driving out in this two-vehicle convoy. Um, They were there to isolate the target um, and confirm. Mm -hmm. Just as they're driving out on that access road, uh, the first drone, there are three drones overhead. One of them strikes, hits Soleimani's vehicle, blows it apart. The other vehicle, the driver, steps on the gas, trying to make a getaway. One of the Delta Force snipers opens fire, shoots through the windshield. When that happens, the driver panics stomps on the brakes, and just as the vehicle comes to a halt, the second Hellfire missile hits it and blows it to pieces. Uh, one final part of it is there was a Kurd, uh, one of our surrogates, disguised as a police officer, who went up to the scene, uh, took pictures of Soleimani's remains, and took a tissue sample for DNA confirmation. Wow. So it was like fucking plain. It was all plain. It, it was not like... The way it kind of came out initially in the press was that it was just another drone strike. Right, yeah. No. We did a drone strike. No, we had him penned in. We had him fenced in. The second he got off that airplane, we had him in the box. Yeah. He was not walking out of No. Because even if the drone missed somehow, Delta's Sni- coming. The snipers yeah, would have taken him like, out. There's redundancy after redundancy because you, you can't let him get out of that. First right. off, it's a win for them. A win. And you, and you can't let him get out there to, um, to retaliate. That oh, yeah, that, and, and like yeah. Him, he, he will like this little shadow war Iran's been turn waging, out will turn into like a real war. Yeah, yeah, it's wild to me. I mean, I get. Listen, I'm a fucking little bitch boy, lib cuck bitch, but I get it. he's got to go. That guy's got. I'm still a fucking scumbag. So, from you know, like you got, it's just some things. You he's got to go, but not doing it IED where there's plausible deniability. I think is an is bad in terms of, like, the level of blowback we're going to get. And that's uh, that's sort of a after-the-fact debate. Should the CIA have been able to take the lead on this? Arguably, the CIA doesn't have a great track record with this kind of shit. I don't even think CIA should. Like, Delta can't pull that but off? Let JSOC do it yeah. and, and bless, bless off on it as a Title 50 covert op, like they did with the Bin Laden yeah. raid. It could be done, yeah. That's what I would, like, I would let Delta or JSOC, whatever, do it contract him with the cia for a little and that's it yeah it was i'm just worried about the blowback for sure i mean i don't know what's going to happen obviously we we hurt them bad for sure Mm -hmm. in terms of operationally but i mean at some point they're going to build back up what one day they're going to blow up one of our embassies or something and then what happens right what's the what's the proportional response there right invading them yeah yeah, and that's sort of the problem that I was alluding to earlier is that I think policymakers often look at JSOC and SOCOM 
uh, as as a plaything. It's something they can use to resolve their policy uh, dilemmas. Sure. And it's something that they can hang their hat on. Like they can put a feather in their hat. Like look what I did. I just a little political of a question, but do you think the the you know putting a fucking light bulb on it? doing it the way we did it where there's no I mean it's us and we did and we took a fucking ad out in the New York Times that it was us was that to political like for political cover for because the impeachment was happening yeah I believe so um, I, I think you can draw a pretty straight line and I think the sourcing on the article that I and, uh, and Zach Dorfman wrote I think paints a pretty clear picture that yes yeah like I don't want to say where I'm like back like but it's I mean it's obvious, like you. Ne- we never, we've never done something like that to a general. Like that's crazy. I mean, I know he's a fucking bad dude. Yeah, but you don't see us going around clipping fucking North Korean generals, right? I, I know Israel does targeted killings like this all the time. That's their mo. That's what they do. It's fine. And this is the epilogue um, to all of this: is have we moved into a new era now? Uh, uh, a new era in the sense that. Now they're going to start targeting our secretaries of defense, our national security right. council members, uh, you know, like like people like General Milley. Like, is he on the target deck now for a nation state like Iran? Right. I mean. And what do we do if they do if they do take him out? I don't know if he is just because unless they can really deny it, because they know that if they did something like that. It's 50-50 or better that we're going to invade and take them out. Like regime change. Even though it's going to cost us $2 trillion again. We're going to lose fucking 10,000 soldiers. It's going to be a shit show. Like like Iraq and Afghanistan were, more or less. But what do we do? What's the response there? It's a, it's a dangerous game. And um, I'm not convinced that our policymakers and some of the other higher-ups at, at you know that level of government have necessarily done their diligence and thought through all of the re- repercussions. That's a nightmare to think that the people that we elect and even the people that we appoint, whether it's in, I mean, the Pentagon does what the Pentagon does, right? They have a job. It's to be able to fuck everybody up, right? That's their job. That's what they get 750 billion for. It's what they, and Jay Sock probably gets a nice chunk of that for sure. That's what they do. They're the point, the end of the spear. They're there for a reason. The civilian side needs to fucking, smarten up to the point where it's not even looking 10 steps ahead it's two steps ahead right, it's not even right. like something super like uh uh complicated but it's part of our cultural style right we uh we think in these four uh you know these short four-year cycles right you know you're in office you have a short period of time to you know make uh make your mark build it's your not legacy even two years build your legacy up yeah and then move on um I, you know, Iran, China, Russia, they don't think like that. No, they're, China specifically, they, they're fucking like slow playing us. It's, I'm an America, I love America, I don't like China, obviously. China, it's an inevitability where they will surpass us. Maybe not militarily, because we're, you know, we love spending money on big hairy weapon systems. And, you know, jacked fucking Navy SEALs to go in at night and fuck people up. But economically, their leverage on the, on the world is undeniable almost. Yeah. I mean, I hate to be pessimistic, but I, I think that we're pretty much done as a global power in the next 20 years, and we will be supplanted by the Chinese, which also leads to all sorts of problems. Um, you know, the United States does not put up with would-be 
usurpers to the throne. I know. Uh, we we back down the Third Reich. We back down the Soviet Union. We don't play games like that. Um, if China is coming to supplant us, we will go to war to prevent that from happening. Yeah, it's bad. Because it, I'm not saying we can't win a war against them. Right now we could, sure. But even now, you're talking, I don't even know if it would go nuclear. But you're talking, I don't think it would because we would all fucking be dead. But you're talking, This is a, it's a war of attrition again. It's literally like... What do you call a battle where you win, but it's like how Vietnam, what do they call that term? Like a pariah victory. Yeah, like you're not going to really win because you're talking millions of people will die. Mm-hmm. And oh, by the way, they have a billion more people than we do. So they can go the Soviet route if it was a real all-out kinetic war and just throw human suffering at us. On Like, you know, to as glib and fucking crazy as that sounds, it's the truth. I mean, there's definitely a lot of theories and papers, and I've read some of them, on how it would go down. It would probably happen, be all over within a month. And nuclear? I, I don't know that it would go. It would probably only go nuclear if um, you had American troops on Chinese soil or vice versa. It's probably the only way it would actually go nuclear. So it happened in a month. What would happen? We'd be blazing away in the, in the Pacific, in the South China Sea, fighting over Taiwan. Maybe fighting in the Philippines or wherever else. And then what? What? I mean, navy wise, we'd beat them right now. Somebody would come up on on top. They'd be the they'd be the new big dog. Um, we would either push China back another hundred years, or China would become the new global power. Right. Um, they would they would be like, you know, all the things we were talking about earlier about the Vietnam syndrome. They would put us right back in that spot. Yeah. Yeah, and it's not you're not talking a small country. You're talking a country, a legit superpower. They are. I mean, I, there's nothing you could do about it. They have, they have the industrial leverage, the manufacturing leverage. If shit hit the fan and they needed 100,000 planes like we did in World War II, they'd have it in a month. And these are, this is the future of special operations. It's yeah. contending with, you know, the buzzword nowadays is uh, near peer and peer adversaries, right? So we're looking at Russia and China all over again. Literally dusting off plans that were, you know, right out of the Cold War. We're talking about, like, stay-behind networks in Latvia and things like this. Yeah, so I had a conversation with a congressional staffer a while back, and he was asking me, like, what kind of questions should we ask SOCOM when they come down here? Or, like, what, what should so we... So they're on a committee. Yeah, yeah. Okay. It, like, what what should we be looking at as far as, like, what, what can soft, you know, bring to the table when confronting China? And... I told him, you know, in my opinion, you know, there are a bunch of different ways that, you know, special ops can be used. I mean, obviously, we're familiar with the surgical strikes and different capabilities. We've talked about POW rescue, things they would have to be prepared to do if uh, a shooting war broke out. But a lot of it is a good old fashioned special forces OSS type missions, uh, working by, with and through indigenous forces, Working with the Filipinos, working you with have the, to. working with the Taiwanese, yeah. Working with you know, if Vietnam wants to work with us, uh, which they might, <laughs> they're not too happy with China, Japan, Japan, obviously, South yep. Korea, yeah. All all of the all of our allies there, um, and I think the capacity for U.S. special ops to work in China or in Hong Kong is very very small, and this is something that came out. Uh, from the uh, the World War II experience versus the uh, Vietnam experience. 
the Indochina experience with the French also, is that as predominantly Caucasian Americans, we are able to um, infiltrate into Europe and conduct operations there. But when we try to replicate that sort of template of the Jedburg teams in Asian countries, it doesn't work out very well. Um, we tried, and the French tried in, in Vietnam, um, it just doesn't hash out. It doesn't work out so well. Um, and our assets all get killed. And we it's just don't detrimental have, to the war effort. We, we don't have the depth of understanding uh, of Asian cultures right. that we do, of yeah. European cultures. So what special forces can do, though, is work uh, through uh, host nation forces. We can train surrogates. We can train exiles right. and send them back into the country. Um, and I mean, I think that we should look at training not just soldiers. Like, we don't need right. to make, like, rangers per se. But we need to train, like, sabotage teams that are going to go behind enemy lines and, like, physically by hand plant plastic explosives at strategic level targets. And Because that's what the Chinese are going to do to us. Yeah, and they can do it far easier than we can. And they're going to do, do a lot of cyber warfare. And D-Day and H-Hour... The Chinese are probably going to turn off the lights in a large part of this country. You don't think we can do that to them? I'm not confident. Really? I feel like us playing the victim with the entire like yeah. cyber warfare stuff, obviously Snowden shut us back big time. I think that is us playing a little possum because there's no way we don't have offensive weapons in that you, place. No, we, without a doubt we have offensive weapons, and I am not a... Uh some expert on cyber warfare by any stretch of the imagination. There's probably a lot of stuff I don't know about. It's just when I sit there and I watch like our congressman interviewing Mark Zuckerberg. Yeah. And they're I, like, I'm with you. How, how, excuse me. How do you make money from yeah. Facebook? It's like, like we have a, even our, our senior Pentagon officials. I mean, they're boomers. Yeah. Like they don't understand this shit. You're at all. right. You're right. Um, so I hope that we have some capabilities you know, and maybe um, at some point it creates like a uh, like a mutually assured destruction. Like, I don't, I'm not going to do that because I don't want you to do it. Yeah. But the way the Chinese have waged cyber warfare against us for the last, like, 25 years, they have tested us. Definitely. And what we have demonstrated is that we won't do a fucking thing in retaliation. No. That we won't do shit. No. So I think that there's a, a real issue that um, on the day one of that war... Shit turns, yeah. That the lights get turned off, that energy gets turned off, that um, our military leaders aren't able to log into their computers because the, all of their access privileges yeah. have been denied. Um, all of those sorts of um, what, what we would call operational preparation of the environment, um, that the Chinese have done that electronically and will slow us down. But I think that maybe we can leverage um, some of our... Uh, background in the OSS and elsewhere yeah. um, to gain a uh, our own sort of asymmetrical advantages in a conflict like that. It's tricky, bro. That's fucking bad. Yeah, and hopefully there are people way, way smarter than I am thinking about these things. Yeah, because yeah, I feel like we need that. Like, we need to, like, if... That needs to be a priority. Spending $750 billion a year, let's throw 50 on that. You know what I mean? Let's fucking get some nerds in a room and get them going. I mean, I've had conversations with people about this topic, and my understanding—I mean, things may have changed, you know, in the last couple of years, but have they though? We literally got clipped for for a five million dollar ransom 
for our fucking northern northeast northeast gas. When I, when I would talk to people about China, they'd be like, "We're not doing shit." Like That's we crazy. like we like all of these things I'm talking like preparation of the environment. Yeah, we haven't done anything. We haven't even started. And they've been doing it for fifty fucking years since like stealing IP, stealing every kind yeah. of like you know mm-hmm. patents or whatever. That's that's good. We're good. So, long story short, soft is not going anywhere. Special ops is going to be around. Policymakers are going to continue to lean on them to do all kinds of challenging jobs. And in a future conflict, be that um, with terrorist organizations that may continue to be state-sponsored, as they have been in the past in in many instances, or with so-called near-peer adversaries, um, special ops is going to have its hands full. For sure. Yeah, they're definitely not going to be sitting on their fucking hands. They're going to be busy. Yeah. Yeah. And they're also dealing with, as it's come out in the press quite a bit in the last couple of years, their own cultural issues. Right. Fighting wars for 20 years, you know, and the the wear and tear that that puts on the units and and the men, um, the actual soldiers. Um, And we're now dealing with the, um, you know, we're going into the conclusion of Afghanistan. That war is ending. There's a lot of painful questions that. You know, we're all going to have to ask ourselves uh, and take a step back and look at what are the I think the real lessons from all of these conflicts are, you know, what are the limits of American power? Um, and it's not to say that we should become pacifists or isolationists, but let's choose battlegrounds where we can win. We should be more strategic as opposed to just fighting, slinging mud at everything. Right. Playing, some people have called it playing whack-a-mole or we're just running around shooting terrorists, hoping it's in hopes that one day a political solution presents itself. That's nuts. And it's also not working very yeah. well. I mean, I don't understand how anybody could think it would fucking work, to be completely honest with you. People who like to stay employed. Yeah, I guess so, man. And to want to prove their fucking theses, like Petraeus. Petraeus is <laughs> a fucking rat. Him too. <laughs> Fuck him. Sorry, guys. Oh, uh, man. It's, uh, yeah, it's going to be a shit show for the foreseeable future Ugh. all right well don't forget to check out the team house guys yeah, yeah jack and dave we and we interview people out of the special operations and intelligence community every week it's right in that wheelhouse of course you could follow jack jack murph mcmurph right on twitter on instagram which is extremely active on and he loves it uh twitter what is it jack murphy rgr and that's it that's dirtbag history. Go check out my book, Murphy's Law. I'll leave a description in the link down, down, right down there. Yeah, and I'll, I'll give you some links to like other books on these subjects. People can. Cool. Uh, I think this was awesome. I think this is fucking thorough as fuck. Pretty good. Pretty Hell thorough yeah. for yeah. Even though it's an over, like literally every topic, we can probably go fucking. Yeah. Yeah. No, easily. All right, that's dirtbag history. Thanks again, Jack. God bless you. Thanks for having me, man. Bye-bye. Can't deny this gravity. Fucking cookies, bro. They're good. Yeah, no shit. They're good. Skinny fuck. 
Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.